3: Welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, been a minute since he's been here, but we're thrilled to have him back because he's always sharp, always has good information. He is both an assistant professor of economics and a research fellow down at Texas Tech, which he reminded me of because I'm wearing my West Virginia shirt, Alexander Zalter, Great to have you back, my friend. How are you? Thank you
4: very much. I'm doing really well. I'm excited to be back. Also, (laughs) guns up.
3: (laughs) There ain't no shortage of economic stuff to talk about. I want to start here, though, because we've talked to you about this before. And one of the reasons we love having you on is you explain so even I can understand this stuff. This stuff gets data set heavy. It gets terminology heavy. It gets philosophical heavy when we start talking economics. Let's start common parlance and nomenclature because we're having a fight right now today as we record this. What is and isn't a recession? We talk about what is and isn't good economic. Do we have a language, I had a math teacher years ago said math is a language. Well, if math is a language, then I don't know what economics is because that's a math-based discipline. Do we have a language problem discussing economics in America right now?
4: We have several problems when discussing economics in America right now. The recession definition one's a little bit interesting since, of course, you could define it multiple different ways. There are several U.S. statutes that say for the purposes of recording national income statistics, et cetera. We define a recession as two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. But just because that's a definition doesn't mean that that's the universally accepted definition. Economists sort of use that as a rule of thumb. But again, there's wiggle room in what we officially count as a recession. Right now is actually a really good example of why we need that wiggle room. If the GDP numbers for the second quarter in the row come in negative, we're going to be looking at a contracting economy at the same time that we don't really have any notable uptick in unemployment. The unemployment rate in the United States right now is 3.6%. That's incredibly low. It would be weird on the one hand to have a recession where you're having dropping output combined with what looks to be pretty strong labor market. So that's, that's unusual. Do we call that a recession? Do we call that a sort of retrenching of production as we sort of undo these supply chain problems?
3: reasonable people can disagree. Is that part of what's going on here too, though, is we haven't had a lot of times where you have something. This this has been blowing everybody's mind for about a year now. Low unemployment, but high inflation, kind of a touchy labor market, even though unemployment's low. This is just an unusual time. Is part of the problem. We're using the terminology we always use, and we use the terms we always use, and it just doesn't quite fit what's really happening here because it's not normal
4: in many ways the terms that we all use separately do a good job of describing the individual phenomenon right we are experiencing inflation right now unemployment is low right now etc the problem is when you try and package it package it all together and try and use a single all-encompassing term or concept to describe everything recession doesn't very clearly to me describe what's going on right now even if you have falling output because again we're used to seeing rising unemployment in a recession. So that's kind of weird. At the same time, the inflationary numbers being as high as they are, at the same time you're seeing unemployment numbers being what they are, that's something that's a little bit historically strange. Now, uh, part of the reason that we find this so weird is actually the fault of us economists. We we owe the public an apology on that one. Economists in the public square have been saying for ages, look, there's this trade-off between Inflation and unemployment. Usually, when one is low, the other is high. When the other one's low, the first one's high. But it's just not true. There is no inherent trade off between the rate of joblessness on the one hand and how fast the dollar is depreciating on the other hand. You can have low inflation and good employment numbers. There's no reason those two things can't go together. And in fact, the reason that one of those inflation has gotten unhinged, I would say, is more the result of
3: bad policy
4: decisions rather than something that's baked into the cake.
3: Yeah, you were writing about this in uh, American Institute for Economic Research, that very thing. And you noted here and explain it to people because words like inflation and recession are just scary to people. They scare folks. They don't like it, especially folks that are a little bit older that have been through a recession before, or been through a downturn before, or been through the 08 financial crisis. These things are scary, but you actually put it in this. There's actually nothing really special about 2% inflation. Kind of explain and unpack that for folks a little bit.
4: Yeah, so the central bank, the Federal Reserve, has a self-adopted 2% average inflation target. Basically, what that means is they're shooting for an average inflation rate of 2% over a number of years. But there's really nothing special about that number 2%. It's kind of like a traffic light, right? Red means stop, green means go. Is there any reason it has to be the case? Not really, right? You could envision a traffic system where red means go and green means stop. But given that we've already coordinated around one system of traffic lights, there's no sense in throwing a wrench in those particular set of years. That would just cause trouble. It's the same for inflation. What we're really looking for is a given rate of change for the purchasing power of the dollar around which to coordinate expectations. So as long as everybody expects the number that the Fed actually delivers, pretty much everything's hunky-dory. It could be 2%. It could be 4%. It could even be 0%. It could even be negative, right? Slight deflation is not a problem so long as everybody knows that it's coming. So we have to get away from this idea that there's this magic one right inflation rate that we need policymakers to tinker with the economy until we hit it. In reality, markets are flexible. And as long as there's credible commitment to a given policy, we can figure things out by writing our contracts differently, adjusting
3: the wage expectations we have when we go
4: looking for jobs, There's a lot that we can do as long as we get credible, predictable policy.
3: Yeah. Alexander Salter joining us, economist from Texas Tech, Young Voices contributor, superstar contributor. He's on the, you've moved up to the header, I noticed on the website, by the way. Congratulations. Uh, Our economist friend Jericho Hill talking about the Fed, since we're using traffic as an analogy, let's just beat that to death a little bit more. He said what the Fed's doing right now is kind of like a car. You're trying to not slam into the car in front of you while not getting rear-ended by the car behind you. And that's what they're doing with the interest rates. We've been doing that for a little while now. They keep raising interest rates. They're going to probably raise them some more. Where do you think we're at in that process, if that's the analogy we're using? Are we too close to the front? Are they getting us where we're going to get rear-ended? How do you think they're doing right now as we sit today?
4: That's a great question. My perspective on this is actually kind of contrarian, and that I think that whatever the Fed is doing to its target for its key policy interest rate doesn't matter anywhere near as much as what they're doing to their balance sheet. We have this idea because economists write about it and financial journalists write about it that the Fed controls interest rates, but they don't. They have a target range for what they want one key policy interest rate to be, but the Fed doesn't have the power to arbitrarily set the federal funds rate, the rate at which banks loan each other money on an overnight basis right interest rates even short term interest rates are set in global capital markets and even a very powerful central bank like the fed is more following than leading those markets where i do think the fed has more leeway is in the overall size of its balance sheet just the total value of assets that they have on that side of their particular accounting ledger right now the federal reserve is holding about 9 trillion dollars in assets for a comparison before the financial crisis of 2008 the fed's balance sheet was under a trillion So over the past 10 plus years, we've seen a massive expansion in the importance of the central bank for creating money and allocating credit. And I would argue that that's not something that's economically sustainable or desirable. So if we want to figure out whether the Fed is serious about whipping inflation or not, I think that we should be talking less about what they're doing to their interest rate target and more about whether they're actually letting those assets to roll off their books and without actually replenishing them. We need that balance sheet to come down or at minimum grow much more slowly than it has been in recent years.
3: You wrote about it in your piece. We're linking to this in the show notes, by the way. Make sure you read this piece. It's an entirety at the American Institute for Economic Research. You talk a lot about the Fed's credibility. We talk about Congress's credibility. We're debating the Supreme Court's credibility. When it comes to the Fed, though, talking credibility, this isn't just you know us in the commentary talking about it. That has a lot of real world implications when you're talking about the Fed. Just for people that don't know, why is the Fed's credibility so important when it comes to monetary policy?
4: Absolutely. Fed credibility is incredibly important because ultimately good monetary policy is about delivering what people expect, right? There's no one right purchasing power of the dollar. The purchasing power of the dollar could fall within a big range. What matters is that everybody has a reasonable expectation of what that number is so that they can then go out and write their contracts in financial markets with that piece of data as a given, right? The dollar in some ways is like a yardstick. If you had the definition of a yard constantly changing, you wouldn't be able to measure anything. You need some fixed unit of measurement so you know how expensive or cheap goods and services are. And ultimately, we need Fed credibility to forecast what that future purchasing power of the dollar is going to be. The problem is that the Fed's rule that it's picked, it doesn't really seem committed to in practice. So again, August 2020, the Federal Reserve adopts an average 2% inflation target. What that means is they're not trying to create 2% inflation each year. They're trying to hit 2% inflation on average over a number of years. The reason that's a problem right now is because inflation is running way hotter than 2%. So if they actually want to hit that average inflation target, assuming that we have an August 2020 start date, we're going to need several years of way below 2% inflation and perhaps even slight deflation. Is that credible? Can we expect central bankers to actually deliver low inflation or even deflation? Absolutely not. Monetary policymakers are terrified of deflation. Monetary policymakers are, frankly, not all that excited about low and predictable inflation. So they've committed themselves to a rule that, based on the basic arithmetic of the scenario, they can't possibly deliver on, which means that markets, which already know that, have no reason to trust the Fed when they say, hey, we're trying to deliver 2% inflation. Markets are going to say, no, you're not. Look at what inflation is right now. There's no way that you can deliver 2% on average. So in effect, the Fed is trying to convince markets of something, uh, of a rule that the Fed itself has no buy-in for maintaining. And that's not a great place to be, right? Because when the Fed says one thing and delivers another, that's exactly when we get traffic jams in financial markets. That's exactly when we start rear-ending each other. That causes no end of economic trouble.
3: See how you work the analogy right back in there at the end. He's a pro, folks. Uh, Alexander Salter joining us. We're talking economics. We're going to talk about that cohesion of policy like everything else coherent policy is important and we don't have it we're going to get into that more on the economy on inflation alexander salter joining us right after this break on her back to her Tell. We're continuing to talk economics with our friend Alexander Salter. He is a professor and research fellow down at Texas Tech. Uh, let's zoom back out for just a second because I think we need to get a little perspective on something. And this isn't just applying to economics. It's kind of built into our system, and we lose perspective on this a little bit, whether it's foreign policy, whether it's monetary policy, whatever. Because of our system of government, we have, compared to a lot of countries in the world, we have a lot of high turnover. We have a new president election every four years, Congress every two years. There's a lot. So getting coherent policy, it's just kind of baked into the cake of our system that coherent, consistent policy is going to be a challenge no matter what. The idea of the Fed was to be kind of a layer on top of that, but that doesn't seem to really be happening right now, does it? There's a lot of
4: inconsistencies in terms of what we're getting in the economy. Although though we do have a lot of turnover in politicians, one thing that seems to be more or less a partisan consensus is deficit spending, right? Since 2020, since the coronavirus pandemic, we've run approximately $6 trillion in deficits. Those deficits were bipartisan. It's one thing for the Republicans to be saying now that we have to focus on fiscal sanity and fiscal sustainability. They were voting for these blowout spending bills a year ago and two years ago. So it was, might be good politics for one party to say that they're committed to fiscal restraint and budgetary prudence, but it's just not true. Unfortunately, we have two parties that are considered uh, committed to breaking the bank. As for what the Fed is doing, ideally, they would be able to take a longer time horizon, but really, they just don't seem all that confident in what they're doing. At first, they insisted inflation was transitory. Then they said, okay, maybe it's here, but it's not going to be that bad. Okay, now it's here, and it's really, really bad, and we need to go pedal to the metal on controlling it. Now, actually, I'm okay in terms of pedal to the metal on controlling it. I am an inflation hawk myself. The problem is the rapid changes in the de facto policy regime, right? The basic stance about what monetary policymakers are actually trying to do. Talk about giving markets whiplash. How is anybody supposed to be able to form a plan about the future if monetary policymakers decide they're going to do one thing on Monday and another thing on Wednesday? So in combination with fiscal profligacy, I think that we've got a lot of money mischief coming from the central bank right now. And that goes a long way to explaining the unfortunate inflation numbers that we're seeing and I suspect are going to continue to see.
3: Yeah, but, you know, like we say on this program all the time, things don't happen in a vacuum. They haven't in a sequence. COVID was the crisis. COVID was the excuse. Our financial house wasn't in order before that. So our Congress and our government kind of had learned behavior from us, the voting public that they were going to be just fine doing something like that because they've had decades and decades of learned experience that that's what you do. You spend money and make a big show of it, and then you go campaign on that big dollar sign that you voted on. That's been the reality for all of my life. I'm 42 years old from at least the 90s when I first started painting politics. This is the game. They talk about it, kind of, but spending money is how you get things done in government that's a generational problem more than an economic problem, isn't it? I mean, that's just kind of the cycle we're stuck in. I don't know how you un that. Do you have any good ideas of how to uningrain ingrain that? Because we use that great buzzword, fiscal responsibility, but it's like raising your kid. If you didn't teach him as a kid and you didn't teach him as a teenager and you didn't teach him as a young adult, the middle-aged guy buying boats and all this stuff, you're going to have a hard time pitching financial accountability to that guy, right?
4: Sadly, you're right. Deficit spending, spending on our means is something that has become basically entrenched in the fiscal appropriations process at this point. And I'm worried that nothing short of a bond market crackdown is going to solve it. I hope that we don't get to that point. One of the things that we're observing right now is rising interest rates across all classes of securities. That's what you would tend to expect as inflation goes up. The problem is, as interest rates go up. Uncle Sam's borrowing costs go up, too. And if trends continue in terms of the rate that Uncle Sam is paying on loans, That means a larger and larger share of the discretionary portion of the government budget is just going to be paying back interest on debt already incurred. That's going to make our political fights worse, not better. So I'm actually thinking that once we get a budgetary squeeze out of all this, that's going to increase partisan rancor. And that's something that I'm personally not looking forward to. Ultimately, we have to get big spending under control. And at the end of the day, Congress is going to do what gets people elected. So I think that you're also right that part of the problem here is with we, the people. We also pretend that we care a lot about fiscal sustainability and budgetary and then we just vote for politicians who spend and spend without taxing. As long as we keep on doing that, politicians are going to keep on behaving the same. So until you get the actual voting public to realize this cannot continue and you are not going to like what happens if we have a sudden stop, until you convince a critical mass of voters of that, I'm frankly not sure how you fix the
3: problem. Yeah, but uh, when you studied economics coming up, you also studied the history of economics. Economics is just the study of people and money, really, when you break it down, even though it's a lot of math. You know this. I know this. Anybody that's honest knows about this. The public isn't going to do anything until it hurts, or they're scared it's going to hurt one or the other. And I just don't, I mean, I want to be optimistic about this, but I'm looking at their trajectories. I'm looking at some of the fiscal crises that are already baked into the cake like Medicare spending, like entitlement spending, like the $6 trillion we just dumped on the economy the last two, three years. That was bipartisan, like you pointed out. Like You're looking at this stuff, and I'm a layperson. You're the economist, you tell me. I'm just looking at this like this is not a far-term problem now. This is near-term next decade, next t- five to 15 years. This stuff is rolling closer and closer and closer. Do you see that as an economist as well? This isn't something in the 90s where they were talking about 2020, 2030. We're in 2022. So even if you're using that 2026 number for Medicare and 2030 for the budgetary issues, man, that's the next election cycle. We're there, aren't we?
4: We're getting pretty close. Again, interest rates are going up. We're confronting the fact that we have lots and lots of unfunded liabilities that we have to pay for, that we currently can't pay for. You're right. Right. The way that this gets really salient for the public is that something goes wrong and all of a sudden these budget constraints start to pinch and pinch hard. The ideal scenario would be to do something about it before then. And this is one of the nice things when you're a government as opposed to a household in the business, you don't actually have to get your fiscal house in order as quickly. We could actually start to get fiscal appropriations and deficit spending under control if we just grew the federal budget more slowly we don't even have to make cuts. If the economy is growing at 3%, assuming that it starts growing at 3% per year, federal spending can grow at something less than 3% and the debt to GDP ratio will come down on its own. On the one hand, you have the tax base growing at the economy. On the other hand, you have tax spending, right? Government spending growing. As long as this hand grows faster than this hand, you're on a fiscally sustainable trajectory. So I'm hopeful that we might be able to come to a consensus around at least that relatively minor behavior change, that relatively easy policy change before stuff starts to get really bad. There are think tanks doing important works about uh, work about passing responsible budgets, especially at the state level. And a lot of those models might be able to help us at the federal level too. One example that I like is there are several states whose uh, politicians have committed to not growing their budgets more than the combination of the sum of inflation and population growth. Which basically means they're keeping government spending and inflation adjusted dollars per person the same. Basically a government spending freeze on a per capita basis. And so that might be the kind of thing that we need to implement just so we can catch our breath a little bit from these decades of deficit spending.
3: Yeah, Alexander Salter joined. Okay, let's end on some good news though, because that was a lot of doom and gloom. And I don't like I don't like to go there, but we got to live in Realville, right? Uh give us some positives in the economy though, because there is one of the reasons this is so weird is and i know there's a lot of people hurting so i don't be flipping about this but overall if you look at some of the the economy isn't in all that bad of shape historically unemployment is low spending is up consumer spending's pretty steady give us some good news on the economy and some things to be looking for that are positive out there as well because we don't want to just be all doom and gloom because it's not
4: one of the really interesting things like you just said is although there appears to be an economic slowdown labor markets aren't hurting It's unfortunate that inflation has reduced workers' wages somewhat, especially over the past year. But I'm hopeful that as long as we have continued strong labor markets, that's going to be able to put workers in a stronger bargaining position so they can get some of that purchasing power back. So in terms of what we're going to actually get, whether the Fed manages to give us a soft lending, whether we're going to fall into a recession, however we define it, I'm keeping my eye on, on labor force participation I'm keeping my eye on unemployment. I'm keeping my eyes on all these indicators of labor market health. And right now those look pretty good. And as long as those numbers hold up, I'm going to be comparatively optimistic about the short-term economic pain. Maybe this particular slowdown isn't going to hurt so much. And that's going to give us a little bit of wiggle room to also tackle the problems that we know we have to confront. Exhibit A, of course, is inflation. That number's got to come down.
3: Yeah, okay, so the $2 trillion questions right now. Uh, we know the recession, that's not a recession that we're not, uh, to quote my buddy Seth Mandel, he said, recession is only recession if it comes from the recession it, region of France, and otherwise it's just, you know, sparkling misery. But is this the worst of it? Have we peaked out? Is inflation going to come down? Is this going to be the bad one, and then we start coasting down, or do we have some more bad to come yet?
4: If you force me to make a prediction, which I'm legendarily bad at, like many economists, so I'm in good company there. If you force me to make a prediction, I'm going to say that we're going to have lackluster economic output for a couple of quarters. We're going to see unemployment go up, but not to worrying levels. And the inflation rate is going to peak in the next couple of months and start gradually coming down. I don't think that we're going to get down to 2% anytime soon. I would be shocked if we came down to 3% by the end of next year. But it is possible to make committed policy changes to start getting control over some of these variables. The central bank can control inflation without throwing a wrench in the economy's gears. It's just a matter of paying attention to that balance sheet and making sure that they shrink it responsibly. I'm also hopeful that political pressure coming up to the midterms forces the Biden administration to maybe ease off on some of his uh, more stringent anti-business restrictions
1: that they have adopted
4: since 2020. We might be able to uh, anticipate something like the remarkable pivot that Bill Clinton engaged in after Republican uh, Republicans in Congress gave him a whipping in 1996. So if something like that happens, we might actually be able to get some bipartisan compromises on specific regulatory issues that ease business restrictions, make it easier to produce. And remember, when it gets easier to produce, it also gets easier to work and purchase and consume. And all of those things would sort of blunt the force of whatever headwinds are against us in the economy.
3: Yeah, but you'd have to have a uh, you have to have politicians that are astute politically like Clint to look at that money train after that beat and go, there's still time for me to jump on that and get credit for all this stuff that Congress is doing. I remember that 98 was my first election. So I remember those times well. Um, Responsible Shrinkage, by the way, would be an excellent name for a book. You might want to look into that. Might copyright that. Uh, he's Alexander Salter. He is a professor down at Texas Tech, brings great information. He also has a book out, Money and the Rule of Law. Go check that out. We'll link all that. Until we get you back on, my friend, it won't be as long as last time, I promise. Uh, let folks know where they can follow you and what you've got going on until we see you again on Hurt Tell.
4: Sure. Right now, the best place to stay in touch with me is through the writings at my website. My website is www.awsalter.com. Uh, pretty much everything I've ever written is available there. You can find my popular articles. You can even find my scholarly articles if you feel, uh, feel like waiting through those. You'll find my email address there. I'm happy to hear from listeners and readers chatting with people via
3: email i don't have twitter
4: anymore so you won't be able to find me on the bird site
3: don't worry young voices has got it too we'll put a link to their twitter which they will be putting us out he's a prolific writer he really is he has stuff all over the place um go look his stuff up we love having you on my friend great talking again uh we may even talk during football season we'll see how it goes might have to you know put the friendship on hold uh, appreciate your time sir thank you so very much thank you andrew it was great yes sir thank you this one for a while. We've been wanting to talk to her for a while. She is one of the outstanding Young Voices contributor in the UK side of the stable, and we are thrilled to have her on. She's a political commentary. She is a frequent guest over yonder. We're thrilled to have her right here with us, Ledis Borkowski, today. How are you, ma'am?
5: Hi, I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on.
3: Ramovsky. I said it wrong, but we, used, yeah. Yeah, Don't right. worry. Le, I got the lettuce right and the Bromowski wrong, but we're so yeah. thrilled to have you. Um, We're going to kind of deep dive this, this prime minister race a little bit. We've been covering it as it's developed, but I think it's important to get the overall picture here. So before we zoom into what's actually happening, just big picture wise, um, how did we get here? Kind of start, um, since Rishi Sunak is now one of the final two, we can start, Really, it was him and, and Savid's resignations that kicked all this off. You can talk a little bit about the scandal that was the, the one scandal too far and a long list of controversial things. Yeah, <laughs> Just take us back to that because that's when the ball really got rolling on this. Then a couple days later, Boris finally relented. Let's start there as background and kind of a framework here. Yeah.
5: Yeah, sure. Happy to. So although here in the UK, it feels like this has quite literally been going on for months, maybe even years. This all only started really back at the start of July um, with yet another scandal that arose um, when the deputy chief whip Christopher Pincher, was actually accused of sexually assaulting two men whilst at a private Conservative Members Club in London. Boris did sort of what Boris does best and he came out Um, defended this man, which mainly we put down to because Mr. Pincher was a devout Boris loyalist from back in January um, when Boris was facing off another rebellion. So Boris comes out, he defends him, saying sort of, I didn't know anything about um, Mr. Pincher's kind of wandering hands. I didn't know anything about his habits. However, very quickly after that, I would say two days, we found out this was entirely untrue. Boris himself had in fact been briefed. Um, on Chris Pinch's kind of ways, and yet he had looked the other way. So Boris had just come out and lied outright to everyone, and this was kind of the straw that you could say that broke the camel's back. Um, And after that, as you were just saying, we saw the resignations of Rishi Sunak and Sajid Javid in one sort of foul swoop on the Tuesday. Um, And then what can kind of only be called uh, or described as kind of death by a thousand paper cuts, as we saw 60 ministerial, uh, like MPs and people in other ministerial positions resigning from their jobs until essentially Boris had no choice but to resign himself. Um, Although he did this in a very Boris fashion, his resignation speech, which finally happened on the Thursday, he he never apologized for anything that happened. There was no sort of contrition there. Um, But more than that, he never actually said the word resign in his so-called resignation speech. Um, and so this was uh, this was sort of what kick-started where we are now with our, our leadership campaign.
3: Yeah. And to be clear, because we're dealing with a parliamentary system, which the American audience and some of the worldwide audience may not be familiar with, uh, the party is still in power. So whoever leads the party yes. will de facto become the prime minister. Uh, y'all had a... Because of the way the system set up, and because of things that happened prior, nobody really wants to have another general election for a while if they can help it. Although I'm sure Labor would love to have one tomorrow if they yeah. do it. <laughs> the, the, this, this is going to go for a little while. Just talk about the system of governments here because it seems weird, maybe to the American audience. is like, what do you mean they're picking the prime minister? Mm-hmm. Well, because the party's still in power. Boris said it ad nauseum the last couple of weeks. He brought in this massive 80-some seat majority to parliament. Yeah. So the party's still in power. And the leader of the party is going to become prime minister. Just kind of break that down for us,
5: yeah. So, as you say, when a prime minister resigns here in the UK, it doesn't mean that the party is forced to have a general election. In fact, almost the opposite, the party stays the same, the government, sorry, stays the same. Um, and as you said, Boris won this incredible 2019 mandate, he won many of the red wall seats, which red wall seats in the UK are essentially what have been labor stronghold seats for a very long time. Yeah. Like, like
3: our swing voter districts like in America. Yeah. Okay.
5: Exactly. Um, and so now the party will stay in power, but that is also has a few downsides as it means that right now we have an almost zombie type government as well now just Richie and Liz are battling it out of the next month. Um, To win leadership, which will take place on the 5th of September, um, and then they will be leader. But until that moment, Boris is remaining in his position as a sort of caretaker, as it's been described, um, with a sort of zombie government where the focus isn't really on uh, the necessary things that it should be, perhaps. You know, we've got a huge cost of living crisis, we've got Ukraine going on. Um, But in terms of the leadership contest itself, Um, Exactly. The first few rounds that we've just had, which saw, um, I believe, five or maybe four um, other candidates eliminated, the only people who can vote in that are the MPs themselves. So it's a very small collection. And now as we move to this final round, voting has been opened up to a wider um, Conservative Party membership, which here in the UK is around between sort of, it's unknown the exact numbers, but about 160,000 people to 200,000 people. That's a very small percentage of the actual electorate, about 0.5% of the entire UK electorate. So there's not many people who will actually be voting for the next prime minister, Um, but once they become prime minister, they will just take up the helm where Boris left um, and continue for the next, you know, year and a half, two years until we have to have a general election.
3: Yeah, Letys Romansky joining us. Let's just start right there as we dig into this contest, though, because the way they do it, like you said, this is just the MPs voting. Uh, you had to have 20 MPs to be nominated. There's a lot of, you know, back backroom dealings and relationships and networks and these sorts of things. The narrative has been, okay, well, the MPs are going to have their favorites. Um, Rishi basically went wire to wire for all. He was the favorite going in. He's he's the top vote getter on the other side of it. The narrative though is the MPs have their favorite, but when this goes to the wider party, a lot of people are saying that Liz or whoever was going to oppose him, it would probably invert and they would probably be the favorite again. Is that noise or do you see evidence that that's the case?
1: No,
5: we are seeing exactly evidence of that. And I think it's actually a really, really interesting differential between the different views that we're seeing here between MPs and the actual conservative membership votes. when Liz and Rishi went head to head in this final vote, they got Liz got 113 MPs to support her, and Rishi got 137 MPs to support him. Um, so Rishi was very clearly the front runner, runner, sorry, and Liz would have a a bit of building up that she had to do. However, in polls that have been taken yesterday within the wider Conservative membership. Liz has an immediate 62% lead on Rishi for Favourite to be the leader. And that's a huge swing that we've seen. Um, and we're not entirely sure what this is about, but one of the strangest things that we've seen, well, one of the strangest things I think that we've seen come out of this is this Boris ballot um, where people seem rather angry that Boris has been ousted. Um, and essentially they want him to come back. And around 6,000 Conservative memberships, Um, voters have signed a petition saying that they want Boris back on the ballot Um, and I'm not really sure how far ahead this is um, but I think there's Liz where she didn't resign um, from Boris's government whereas Rishi he did resign and it was all rather a spectacle and um, a day later after his resignation he came out with a video which showed he'd clearly been planning this for weeks if not months ahead um, which i don't think has gone down very well with the membership itself
3: a video that by the way in english press got labeled as american styled for whatever reason i found yes. that kind of
5: interesting <laughs> it was very american <laughs>
3: uh well he he was he we'll get into his background in a minute hold that thought because he he's got some american tendencies and for good reason he went to school here we'll we'll get into that in a minute we'll continue our conversation with our friend Lettuce from over in the uk her tale continues right after that you look at this race though what you just said it's not a straight comparison to the left and right the conservative party in england is not what we think of as american conservatives they'd be well to the left of the the midline conservatives in america however is it more accurate to at this point to just call boris johnson a populist especially when you see a poll number like that that seems to be kind of divorced from the politics of the moment and you just kind of get a visceral reaction like that is it not just accurate to just kind of call him a populist at this point
5: Um, I mean, he definitely was. And that's something that Rishi is sort of trying trying to get behind and do that kind of as well. He's trying to win over the voters. And when we look at it between Rishi and Liz, Liz very clearly struggles to be that same sort of schmoozer that Boris was. She doesn't seem at the moment, and this is probably one of her major downfalls, to be able to corral people and unite people in that same way. Whereas Rishi is very natural in front of a camera, he sort of thrives much more, Um, and so he'll sort of be waiting for that, um, in terms of the Conservative Party members, he'll be waiting for that big major moment, but Rishi, um, one of the main, although, as you say, sorry, they are both Conservative Party members, and they do align on a lot of values, you know, they're both free marketeers, and they support that, they're both supporting um, the immigration plan that we have at the moment for Rwanda, um, where it will see that any illegal immigrants crossing the channel will be able to be processed in Rwanda rather than here in the UK. Um, And obviously they both support um, Ukraine. Liz wants to actually increase defense spending to three percent. But as you were saying, characteristically, they're very different. And what we're seeing now is one of the main and actually I think the linchpin of the next few weeks is all around taxes. Rishi wants to um, continue with the tax hikes he has in plans, so increasing corporation tax from 19% to 25%, continuing with the rise in national insurance, uh, whereas Liz wants to cut taxes immediately, cut taxes to around 30 30 billion in tax cuts. And that's where we're seeing the real divisiveness in the leadership right now. That's potentially where Rishi is losing a lot of like grassroots conservatives, um, whereas Liz is gaining them and winning them back a lot. Um, But that's the main divisive thing uh, we're seeing at the moment.
3: Is, is the cost of living crisis where and you can put taxes and inflation and food and fuel all that falls under the cost of living in the parlance that the media is using over there. That's the issue, right? Everything else is slotted yeah. somewhere under that. Even within the Conservative Party though, there seems to be a little bit of disagreement how to actually attack this. Yes.
5: Yeah, definitely. And there are many MPs and um, members of the Conservative Party who do support Rishi's plan to um, basically hold off, save the economy first and uh, cut taxes later, sorry. Um, But there are also, uh, what we're seeing is that Rishi's had the past two years, and we're predicting the UK to be the slowest growing economy in the G20 for this next year, only coming in above Russia, which is an incredibly low bar and that's a uh, two years since 2019 that Rishi himself has presided over. Um, and I think one important thing that we've got to look at is what's actually driving this inflation and it's not because people are going out and they're spending loads of money and supply is uh, demand sorry is booming it's in fact because of huge supply chain issues that we're having in um, because of things like Ukraine going on and the war in Ukraine, um, which means that if we targeted the tax cuts and we cost them fully, uh, we should be able to not cause inflation at the same time as having these tax cuts.
3: Yeah, some breaking news from our friend uh, Lettuce there. Uh, the UK is an island and those chains kind of matters from history. Uh, we're talking to Lettuce. Sporomowski. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to get into a little bit of a deep dive. Rishi Sunak, Liz Trust, who are they? What are they? What are they about? We're going to get into that. We're also going to talk about some of these also rants because underneath the headliners, the party, there seems to be some interesting power moves that I think we can take away from this. We'll continue our conversation with our friend Lettuce from over in the UK. Herddale continues right after that. Back to, her to tell We're overseas with our UK friends, Lettis Romowski from Young Voices. She is a seasoned political commentator over there. Just go look at her Young Voices page. She's all over the place over there. It's amazing. Okay, let's talk about these top two candidates. Uh, they're both MPs, they're both well established. Uh, let's start with Rishi Sunak. He went wire to wire in the MP portion of this race. He was the favorite. He held the votes all the way through. He's a young guy. I believe he's what, 42 years old. Uh, good yeah. looking guy. He, he comes from, um, Punjabi Hindu family, which of course is a big subset, uh, culturally in the UK. That'll be something folks want to talk about. Educated Oxford, of course, went to Stanford on a Fulbright, uh, Fulbright, excuse me, scholarship. So he has some American tendencies. He's wealthy. He's ambitious. He's obviously political, but who is Rishi Sunak?
5: God, I mean, well, you covered him off pretty well there. He has, for the last two years, been the Chancellor of the Exchequer here. So he's been largely in charge of the economy. And to give him his dues, he's had to manage it during a particularly uh, difficult time, you could say, as we've been going through COVID. Um, And he has done that, well, to some extent. Some people obviously criticised him for it. But he did well. He supported the economy. He uh, sent people on furlough during those two years. He did things like the eat out to help out scheme, essentially trying to support small businesses through these incredibly tough times. Um, but what we're seeing now is a sort of shift in that dynamic where I feel as we exited the COVID uh, pandemic, some will say it's not quite over yeah but I would say from my mind at the start of this year life very much began to get back to normal we were um, going out eating out we were um, going back into work going back into the office life was just kind of opening back up and I think that he potentially missed an opportunity there to go back to real conservative values perhaps and instead in April when we had our um, financial budget released he chose to increase national insurance taxes, um, and he said he would next year be increasing corporation tax. Um, For me, I think this was a bad move, particularly corporation tax, as we're at a time when we want businesses to kind of be flocking to the UK, to sort of have our post-Brexit, post-COVID boom. Um, And that's where I think he slightly lost a beat on this. Um, But as you say, he is an incredibly intelligent man. He's very well educated in economics. Um, He's got himself into a little bit of a few scandals. I was interested in how you were picking up on his um, American Americanisms there. Um, There was a scandal, and mainly one of his main ones, there have been two, I would say, was that um, he got into a scandal over his wife's non-dom status, which essentially meant that even though he was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, his wife was fully legally, I might add, Um, avoiding taxes by remaining a non, not a citizen of the UK. Um, And so he got in quite a lot of hot water about that. He also has a green card, which when this came out, people were very unhappy about this, um, mainly because it felt almost like at any moment he would just leave the UK to become an American citizen and instead kind of turn his back on us. And it was very fraught at the time. Um, But other than that, um, he he is he has been the very clear front runner throughout this entire leadership contest, and I I still do think it'll be quite close between him and Liz.
3: Hey, we clipped off one of your princes. Now we're getting one of your PMs through. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm joking. (laughs) Um, One quick little tidbit about him, also though, is you just mentioned it though. Some of the little whispers you're getting now politically wise is, is he changing too much trying to craft a prime minister image from what he has been as an MP? Because people are starting to deem on that as like, okay, well, you're just, you're adjusting just to become prime minister now. Is that going to hurt him going forward?
5: No, because in many ways, he will have to adjust because being chancellor of the Exchequer, although being in one of those main positions within our government is the only way you can sort of practice to be prime minister. Um, And I think that's why a few of the other candidates fell off a little early is because you do need that experience. Being prime minister of this country is a is a different job, though, and he will have to fashion himself in a sort of new light and in a new way, um, as that will just be shifting into a new role. Uh, One of the main concerns, though, of this is whether this um, this will lead to a lot of infighting within the Conservative Party. Um, It got to the point we have a few televised debates here between the leadership candidates as they go. Um, And in fact, the last one ended up being cancelled because um, Rishi and Liz Trust pulled out because it was seen to be far too damaging to the party image. Um, And I think that is a very important point to touch on there that um, and Liz actually said it in an interview recently that even if Rishi wins, um, she uh, even if she wins, sorry, she would hope to have Rishi within the fold of the Conservative Party. And that at the end of this, it'll all be about uniting the party together to continue on with all the financial difficulties and international difficulties that we have going on.
3: Let's just go ahead and talk about Liz Trust then. Another young person, uh, she's not 50 yet, she's in her late 40s. Um, mm-hmm where do we start with her because here's the problem let's let's just be grown ups here any female mp that's looking to be the prime minister is going to get compared to thatcher she's already had to deal with this in the press she actually had to come out and say yeah. no i'm not trying to dress like thatcher among yeah. other silliness that's going to be the comp there's nothing you, teresa may deal, dealt with this she's going to deal with this whoever the next female of either party that's up for a prime minister they're going to deal with it what mm, part of that's fair yeah. and what part of that's unfair
5: I think it's a very interesting point, and as you say, Liz came out and she said, um, there's always this sort of double standard that women are always compared to Thatcher, and yet men are not necessarily always compared to Ted Heath, I think she said. Um, I think it's, you know, you never, we're not, we're not sort of looking for the next thatcher we want to be looking for the next great female leader whether that is liz truss i think there's almost a sort of life has moved on a lot from them though although she does very much stand by thatcher's principles i think the direct comparison to her which seems based purely a lot off because she's a female leader is kind of unhelpful to her cause i think liz herself has done a huge huge amount for this country. she has got the huge experience. she was justice secretary, she was trade secretary where she did uh, what I thought was most incredible work pushing forward our new free trade deals, particularly with Japan and Australia when we were coming out of brexit. Um, and it, she was sort of exemplar in getting those over the line. and then again she's now recently just been foreign secretary. And she was very much there for Russia and Ukraine scandal she was forceful with the sanctions um, and her policies yes they are thatch right in sort of essence but they could also be equated to many other people um, a bit like Reagan they're very Reagan economics as well so it goes it goes sort of both ways in this I would say
3: We did it with uh, <coughs> excuse me we did it with Rishi uh, Liz's background is very different from his he kind of came in. On top and went directly into high office. She really did climb the ladder. Of course, she went to Oxford as well. Her parents, though, her dad was a uh, was a university professor. Her mom was a nurse. That's important if you're going to hold, you know, healthcare things with the NHS issues, things like that. She's really climbed the ladder, even though she's still relatively young. You can just go look at her CV like she has held over a dozen different posts in government of various kinds she's climbed the ladder she's checked all the boxes she's a career politician I don't even mean that as a bad way she just she's done all the work um does that compare and contrast between her and Rishi matter in this race at all is there an experience over kind of the flashy new guy that came in and went not straight to the exit but pretty much for all practical purposes compared to what she did is that a part of this race too
5: um, I would say that one of the main parts of this where that will be in effect is that, like you said, Rishi is a very high profile sort of politician. He and Boris, have he's been in the news sort of every week, every day, sort of the front pages since he became in as chancellor. Um, but that the only good thing that means for Liz trust is that if Conservative party members have made up their mind about him, it's unlikely that over the next month he'll be able to change that because he's been so public over these past few years, he's been entirely known. Whereas Liz Trust, she may not have been as public and she may not be as natural in front of a camera, but that plays to the other side of that. We've had Boris, who has been this great schmoozer, who has been basically very loose with his morals over the past two years, and that has played down to his other MPs. Um, And I think that could in fact play in her favor that she hasn't been caught up in party eight, the same as everyone else. Um, And she has sort of kept our head down and she's just can say that she has been working for the country and going forward.
3: When her team was deflecting the Margaret Thatcher comparisons, um, they brought up uh, Ronald Reagan as well. Of course, those two are kind of linked in a lot of different ways, but they brought up a name as somebody that she did try to list as an influence, Nigel Lawson for the American audience and for the international audience who doesn't know who Nigel Lawson is. Why would she bring that up as, well, no, I'm not really trying to be Thatcher. I'm trying to be more like this person. That seems like an interesting name drop. Explain that for folks.
5: So Nigel Lawson was a sort of big proponent of Thatcher's policies of, uh, you know, Thatcher's policies in economics, things like privatizing several key industries. Um, But one of the main things that he did was um, he saw the deregulation Um, of the financial markets sort of halfway through her term which essentially um, saw a huge boom within London financially allowing it to grow very massively it's referred to often as the big bang Um, and I think in some ways this is what we're hoping to see Liz Trust do if she gets in so if she'll be able to um, do things like deregulate right now we've got ourselves into a horrible sort of cycle of um, borrow spend and then tax and this is just going on and on and we need to stop that in its tracks and if we can deregulate so do much more small state um, low taxes so that we can see this bigger growth we will be able to see hopefully this sort of similar boom that um, we that was seen in the 1980s
3: yeah. Let us key joining us. We're gonna take one more quick break. Those are the two leaders. What about everybody else that ran? Because that's still the Conservative Party is the next next leader after whoever wins this race in that group somewhere. Talk about the future of the Conservative Party, the also rans, what that tells us about the state of the party. More with our friend less over in the UK right after this as her tale continues. <laughs> Back to Heard Tell. Thrilled to be talking to our good friend Lettuce baronsky We've been wanting to get her on for a while. Now we got her and we get to go deep on the UK uh, Conservative elections over there. Okay, let's talk about the also rant. I think the one that surprised everybody about this race was the strength of Penny Morden. Um, obviously, you know, again, we're all adults here. We know these things don't happen overnight. She's obviously done a lot of groundwork within the MPs of the party to get that much support. She planned this out. Do you think this is her rising in importance or was this a one-off? How do we kind of view her? She came in third, came in a close third, really. Uh, Mm. Where do we view her going forward? Do you think she's a power player now or is this a one-off thing?
5: She's definitely a power player now. She's proved that she can corral people, get MPs on side, win that support, Um, And she did incredibly well to get where she's come from. She was put in for a very brief time as Defence Secretary by Boris before she was demoted once again um, and replaced in the reshuffle. Um, But she did, considering that sort of being her biggest exposure, other than that, she's mainly been just a trade minister. So nothing particularly high level. She's done incredibly well to showcase the side of herself that says, I can get things done. She's got a very extensive background in, um, um, in the military. She was in the Navy for a long time. I have no doubt that she will be back again uh, when there's a next leadership election, if there comes. And I also have no doubt that she will now hold a much higher position within the Cabinet.
3: Is there going to have to be some kind of detente here between the Penny Camp and the Liz Camp to combine? Is there a feeling like, okay, we're going to have to come together here if we're going to beat Rishi? Is there going to be some, I don't know how y'all do it over there, but you know, in, in our political party, there'd be, all right, I'm going to give you this and this, and you're going to support me on this and this, and we're going to go win this thing. Is there some of that going on now?
5: there throughout the whole leadership whenever the leadership contest sorry whenever a candidate went out they had a sort of set number of voters behind them essentially um and it's always interesting to see so penny herself in the last election when she got kicked out got 105 voters and we remember liz only got 113 so it really really was very close um it will be interesting to see who penny now backs Obviously, all MPs have their own mind and they'll make up their own mind about who they want to go to. Um, So a lot of it will be down to Liz, Truss, and Rishi to do the legwork to try and win over each of Penny's followers. But if Penny decides to back Liz or Penny decides to back Rishi, that will definitely have an impact on where those people who were supporting Penny will go.
3: While we're talking about um, the female candidates here, there were two other ones. This was a diverse field. It was four and four. Um, Mm. Suella Braverman and Kimi Bandanot, um, Kimi really opened a lot of people's eyes because a lot of people just didn't have any idea who she was. They'd probably never heard her speak. They probably hadn't seen her. They couldn't put a face to the name. She, um, wasn't particularly noted before this. I think a lot of people Mm. paid attention to her now, good, bad, and indifferent. And of course, Suella Braverman, she was one of those that called for resignation. She's a serving attorney general. Uh, Just break down those two women for us real quick.
5: Yeah, definitely. So first of all, Suela Bravman, she was, I mean, she was, like you say, excuse me, and as I say, rather unheard of, particularly if you're not into politics massively, or if you aren't reading up about who the attorney general is at the time, which most people wouldn't be, but she came out and she came out swinging. What she is known for very much is she um, allowed changes to the northern ireland protocol which is a very big and rather complicated thing that's going on here in the uk about the border between the uk once they left brexit and the republic of ireland so it would be northern ireland republic of ireland whether it would be a hard border there a soft border um and very recently the one the main things that she's done is she Um, pushed it through to say that we would not be breaking international law if we changed um, this Northern Ireland protocol. And that was very, very popular within the Conservative Party. And I think that definitely gave her a bit of a push forward. Um, And then as we move on to Kemi, Kemi's done incredibly well. I think all the women actually in this Conservative leadership have done so well. And hopefully it will show a lot more of a female, um, many more female MPs higher up up, really. Um, but Kemi, she's very hard on woke, which is very popular with our conservative, um, the Conservative uh, Party members, as well as the MPs. And she's sort of not afraid to say what she thinks on that. She's also very much a sort of true root blue Conservative, if that makes sense. So she's very much on uh, less taxes and small state and all of that. But she spoke her mind, and she spoke it very well. And I think we can definitely expect to be seeing them again in much more seen and notable positions. And I expect they will try again to be leaders
3: someday. Yeah, interesting diversity in the conservative leadership. Test. One quick name before we put a bow on this thing. Uh, Tom Tugganhat. Uh People really didn't know who he was. I know he first came yeah. around when he gave that speech in the House of Commons. and it, some, I never thought I'd live to see the United States being denounced in the House of Commons, but there I was sitting watching it live, not for no good reason, I must admit. That speech he gave on Afghanistan, he was kind of seen as maybe the integrity candidate here um, in a lot mm. of ways. He wasn't going to win, but I think a lot of people felt very comfortable with him, see him as a good man. Uh, what's his yeah. future in the party? He, he's pretty secure as an MP. Does he go for a ministry post? Is he content on a back bench? What do you think he does from here? Because he's got a lot of public support and respect in the chamber, does he really want to get into the dirty into the politics or do you think he just kind of maintains?
5: Well, I imagine that all MPs somewhere in their, in their political career will be aspiring to be in one of those top senior positions. So I imagine he definitely will be going for it. As you say, he's sort of, um, well, in my mind anyway, at least he'd never really had a chance to be leader, but was more trying to showcase himself for what he had to offer and his advantages his background is almost entirely only in defense and in military um, which made him sort of limited and definitely not a, a prime minister position but it gave him the opportunity to say that i'm here i'm willing to sort of fight I'm willing to showcase particularly things going on in ukraine things that happened in afghanistan and that will put him front of mind perhaps when it comes to choosing who will be in the next cabinet and who will hold those top positions which i think is the main thing that he really wanted to get out of this
3: yeah i think so too and that that speech if anybody we covered it when he did it uh, i think we carried it go back and watch it it's really an exceptional piece of uh, oration in a chamber mm. that's rather famous for really good oration down through the years that that'll hold up against anybody's all right got to put you on the spot we've been talking about it for a half hour who's going to win this thing
5: I mean, my vote is definitely with Liz Truss. I'm a sort of libertarian values through and through. So tax cuts for me is the important thing. I think we've got to be big. We've got to be bold. We don't just want to keep going in this horrible cycle of borrow spend tax. So Liz Truss is the one for me.
3: Having said that, put your analysis hat back on. Now you got to go back to being impartial though. Um, Again, we opened up with it. Let's close with it. The narrative is, Rishi was more popular with the MPs. Liz is going to be more popular when it goes to the wider party. I think it's 170,000 some odd will be voting on this. Mm-hmm. If, if, how does he change? Because he, look, he's very smart. He's got a team. They plan for this. They hear all that. They've probably seen that polling data by now. What's their plan to move that number over the next six weeks?
5: I think that they will have to really what the main plan is, is how they're going to enact all the things that they want to enact. So one thing we do here is they're basically going to be touring the UK, um, going around and having these things called hustings, which are with um, Conservative Party members, where they'll be able to debate their policies um, and basically answer any questions from the audience that they may have. That will be so important as to whether Rishi, although he's not being true conservative right now, perhaps will be able to showcase why his may be the best route forward. Um, and hopefully there won't be too many blue on blue attacks that we're seeing. And hopefully it will just go off the policies and what you believe. Um, but I guess we'll have to wait and see how these next few weeks pan out.
3: All right. This is an unfair question, but it's a real world question. So I have to ask it. Which one has hurt the Conservative Party more lately as far as the future goes? Is it the Boris Johnson stuff or is it the infighting that has come through this process? Uh, It's probably not uh, separable because the one led to the other. But which one of those do you think is the bigger issue going forward?
5: I think that um, ultimately Boris's time was done. Six out of ten of the membership thought that he should resign. And to be honest, I, I thought at that point that it was his time to go it was damaging, I think, more than just the party when it was Boris's scandals, it was damaging our democracy and our whole government. It was sort of bringing it down with these sort of petty, immoral scandals. Now there is infighting, but if, They can continue to showcase that they will unite at the end. And at the end of the day, conservative is conservative. They all support each other, back each other. And we don't get too many sort of uh, allegations or smear campaigns. Then we'll be fine. I mean, we want good debate between these leaders. We just don't want personal attacks.
3: Yeah. Let us She is fantastic. We're going to have you back in a couple of weeks as we get towards the end of this. We'll recap this again. We're not going to wait two years again. I Yeah, would love uh, that. We'll get you in the regular rotation. Until we see you again on Herd Tell, though, let folks know where they can follow you and keep track of you and keep up with what you're doing.
5: Yes, please. You can go follow me on Twitter at L Bromowski, which is uh, B-R-O-M-O-V-S-K-Y. But that's my main place. And obviously on Young Voices
3: yep it's right there if you're watching on the youtube or the big talker our radio partners facebook feed it's right there in the lower corner graphic make sure you're following her outstanding stuff looking forward to doing it again going to be an interesting hot couple of weeks not just because of the record-setting weather y'all got going on over there let us thank you so much ma'am it was a pleasure thank you yes ma'am Back to her, tell and Andrew Donson. Okay, been looking forward to getting him on the show for a while. He's become quite a good Twitter buddy. We talk about things offline. We're going to do it on main today, as those kids say. Uh, Peter Pischke, he's a young voices contributor, freelance journalist, a long, long list of credits as far as his writing goes. You can find him all over the place. We're going to talk about a couple of his pieces. As always, they will be linked in the show notes. Peter, how are you, my friend? Good to see you.
6: Great to be here. Howdy, everyone.
3: Uh, glad to have you in. We want to start big picture because we're going to talk about two parts of media that, and I'm guilty about this too, because I'm a little bit older and I, I still grew up on the tail end of no internet, early internet in the nineties. We tend to look at these two mediums as somewhat niche or as just social media or message boards, but they're way bigger than that. And we want to get into them with two pieces you wrote today, Reddit and YouTube. Um, let's start with YouTube because I don't think people maybe realize YouTube is actually, when you step back and look for it, I know it's all user-based. This is really one of the biggest media platforms in the world right now.
6: Oh, easily. YouTube is, for all intents and purposes, the largest um, open uh, video platform on the net. Arguably, you could say uh, Baidu over there in China is bigger, but uh, I don't know if I trust those numbers. But yeah, it's it's huge. And to give it a little bit of perspective, you know, when you think about a news site, if you look at like the traffic first site, like Salon, a fairly popular uh left-wing kind of blog website they track their views the the number of clicks they get in the millions and so they say oh we had a a 5 million a week or we had a 30 million a month well for many youtubers who consider just middle level youtubers say the gaming youtuber the quartering he sometimes gets that every two weeks. And that, you know, look at even the the huge ones like PewDiePie. I mean, they're getting that sometimes per video. So uh, YouTube in so many ways really is the dominant way people um, communicate and digest information, not just like real news, but, you know, all kinds of fun topics.
3: Yeah, we got some data here. Pew found out Almost a quarter of people that use YouTube say they get their primary source of news, not networks, not websites. Their primary source of news is YouTube. Now, all major news outlets have YouTube pages now. Uh, We clip them often. We use them all the time. Uh, These house hearings, for example, that's all streamed on YouTube now. This is a culture shift that we've seen it in real time, but I don't think we've fully vested, and you've talked about in some of your writing. I don't think we've fully vested what this changed and how people access and interpret information though, have we?
6: No, no. I, and I think this is something that um, both people in conservative media, mainstream media, for the most part, don't quite understand yet there because the, the people that become journalists, they come from a, a point of view and a certain background where they don't really connect with um, the more popular uh, underculture. So people like, you know, even though I disagree with their reporting often, uh, like Taylor Lorenz, to people like Ben Shapiro, there are those that understand that really we are living in a new media ecosystem. And it's just uh, most of uh, news media has yet to catch up.
3: We got dad on this too. Peter's joining us on Heard Tell. And here's why that works. And I'm going to try to walk through this from a numbers point of view, and then we'll talk about the cultural aspect. But what you just said, somebody like Taylor Lorenz, who's, you know, they've already got a massive platform, was at the New York Times, now at the Washington Post, you know, big time, big J journalist places. Here's why this works this way. 62% of all internet users go on YouTube daily. That's an astonishing number, but here's the one that makes that number more important. Um, The visitors that come onto YouTube, 99% of YouTube users are also on other social media platforms. You got into this with your Reddit article. You got into this with your YouTube article. The thing about YouTube is, and I've got, look, this shows on a YouTube channel. My radio station partner, they're on a YouTube channel. You've got a Substack which links to YouTube youtube has really yeah. become the hub for media and it goes everywhere else that's the part of that that people don't really think about is 99 of youtubers they're either getting there through social media or going somewhere else through social media again
6: no it, it, it's a it's a it's a reinforcing ecosystem that uh is pretty powerful um it, it doesn't really necessarily need the more traditional places like uh news outlets uh, it's like this whole different universe. And it, what's so interesting is it's this universe that's much bigger than the, the traditional media universe, but that's not how people like to think of it.
3: Now, part of what you were writing about when you got into Actman and some of this other thing is we are trying to apply traditional rules to this new media, uh, copyright rules. Everybody knows that our YouTube users, even somebody like me that doesn't fully understand it, even though I've got my channel on there, I got bit by it. I, I had a clip grabbed because they didn't like something I said. And I, I appealed. And I'm like, I didn't even say what you said I said. And, then, you know, it's an algorithm. There's nothing you can do about it. Yep. Part of the problem with this platform, I know we talk about biases. People talk about bannies and all this. Part of it is, though, we're just applying old rules to a new medium. And we're still kind of in the early, even though we've had YouTube for 10, 12 years now, we're still in this infancy of trying to figure out what the rules for this thing ought to be and the old rules don't really apply real nice and neat do they
6: no they in fact the way that youtube is set up often um, the rules that we might abide by get in the way of doing good work on youtube or getting traffic um, and sometimes it's the other way around where youtube might be more authentic than maybe some of the more clicky soundbite news outlets like your local news it's interesting they they don't quite cover each other one-to-one and the standards are a little different i like to think of youtube as kind of like the early years of american journalism where it's a lot more free form you have all kinds of things coming your way there is a lot of great work and there are very serious people there but there's also you know some flamethrowers people who like to stir the pot
3: <laughs> now i'm a history guy peter Pisky joining us on her tell Uh, I'm a history guy. I know you're, as a journalist, you're a little bit of a history guy, too, because that just kind of goes hand in hand. I know the early American Journal, we had yellow journalism. We had uh, stuff that now wouldn't even pass as tabloid, stuff that would be illegal with the current libel laws, some of the stuff they did back then. You dealt with it with your Act Man piece a little bit. Part of the problem with YouTube is you have a lot of bad faith actors. You have people that know how to uh, hijack the system, for lack of a better way of doing it. To for nefarious means. And part of the problem here is YouTube, a lot of the times, and I'm going to give them a little bit of benefit of a doubt here. I know people will jump on this. They don't seem to be able to really tell the difference between those good faith actors and the bad faith actors sometimes, do they?
6: No, nor does it seem like they want to because they, social media companies in Silicon Valley, they want questionable deniability. So for one, giving too much information to people so like there are clear rules of the road, what will get you banned? what won't that doesn't work for them it goes the other direction they don't necessarily want every little piece of information because like you see maybe with the elon musk um his argument with twitter well i don't really need to don't really want to know about the twitter bot traffic right now because you know later on if i get asked about this that could hurt me so and frankly there's the capabilities are there you know youtube can tell you by the second who's watching what, how much, and why, but uh, that isn't information they ever release to the public.
3: Because, and this is something throughout social media, we're not just picking on YouTube here, they're an information company first and then a video company second, but we don't understand that because we just want the content we just want to watch our views. That's why their priorities are different, isn't it? That,
6: that is a big, a very big part of it. It's a, YouTube and Silicon Valley tech companies uh, with social media, their business model is way different than the, the front they put up for YouTube. If they were just a video service company, they, they lose money every year. The majority of YouTubers do not produce enough revenue to offset the cost of like servers, legal, etc. Don't I know? <laughs> it, it's it's so they make their money on things like um clout, clout having you know having a lot of influence. That helps. They make a lot of money on uh, ads, of course. That's when everyone knows they make a lot of money on selling data and information. Um, It's interesting because it's weird because these are such big, powerful companies, you think. But in some ways, their revenue stream is fairly fragile.
3: Not only fragile, they get dinged because they seem to make certain decisions and then you have a public outcry and then they adjust it. Talk about your ActMan piece for a second. It's on your Happy Warrior Substack. We will link to it. Make sure you go subscribe to this Substack. He does great work there. Thank. You. This is a good. This is kind of a good example of this because here you had a guy that was trying to expose a bad faith actor, got himself banned, and then they had to turn around and put him back on. And yet, the bad faith actor just just kind of run us through this story because it really is kind of a microcosm of some of that background we just walked through. Of they have a business model, and the business model conflicts with the content. So, the content side, we're seeing it one way; they're seeing it another way. Just why was this such a good example of what some of the problems and some of the good stuff of YouTube is?
6: Okay, so so uh, the, the TLDR as it is the TLDR. Uh, Kelly Van Act is a YouTuber known as the Act Man. He runs uh, what he's popular for a long form gaming documentary videos. He kind of has his online presence is kind of like a gaming bro, but he's actually a pretty nice guy. Um, So there is another YouTuber that is well known in the community for causing problems. And I don't mean just being like complaining on Twitter, like legal problems. This uh, YouTuber abuses the copyright system. Uh, constantly. A real copyright troll. Um, he threatens people with legal action. He puts out spurious accusations that might get people in big trouble, like he'll try to allege that they're a pedophile. He's more than happy to try to use his followers to cause all kinds of uh, offline online mischief. Uh, a really nasty guy, all things considered. Uh, YouTube name, Quantum TV. Anyhow, so Quantum TV had been going after a teenage YouTuber. Uh, Kelly uh, had the... Had the teenager reached out to him because Actman is known despite his gaming bro personalities being just a pretty nice guy that's willing to help out if you ask. And so he looked into it and it was it was pretty egregious. So he, he just did a video kind of making fun of the guy on his Elden Ring review. And then that opened the floodgates. It's, it started with threats, and strange emails, um, and eventually it culminated in having his mom threatened the guy do, uh, doxed him. Called up his mom, uh, threatened her, say, hey, if you don't get your son on board and in control, you know, maybe we're going to have to pursue legal action, um, which kind of shook up their family. So um, maybe unwisely, uh, Actman then put together a video documenting Quantum TV, all his bad acts and why, according to the rules of YouTube, and it's very well done, actually, and pretty clear why Quantum TV should not be on the platform. Now, when this happened and it became popular online, YouTube did not say, oh, gee, Willie Willikers, you're right, Actman, this is a problem. We should we should do something about it. They said, no, Act Man, bad. Don't point this stuff out. So they they took down his channel. They they banned him first on his videos, saying it was sexually suggestive. There's nothing whatsoever in it. It was PG content. Um, then later on when they got more pressure, they complained and say maybe it was these tweets that was about that that they took him down or he was encouraging harassment, which he wasn't. But really, it was about that he had embarrassed YouTube. And even though Kelly his channel had never had a copyright strike on him, had never broke the rules, he had always had a very good and professional relationship with YouTube, they took him down. It wasn't like you get three strikes, you just you're out. And uh, it was unknown what, what exactly was going on, and he seemed pretty despondent. You know, just then, last week, YouTube um, let him back in the partner program with limited remonetization. And we don't know how that's going to happen or why exactly they brought him back on. But, but it's a scary thing because it shows that the rules that YouTube has, or any of these social media companies, they are rules for the public to see, but they're not rules in actuality. They're, there's the front rules that they show everyone, and then there's the rules in the back, which they actually follow. And we're not going to tell people what exactly those are. So it, it, is a, it is a scary story in the sense that you, it's really unknown what you can do or not do on these platforms. And if you're someone like Kelly who put in seven years of his life building his channel – that's his livelihood for him and his family, and they can just pull the plug at any minute for any reason. Well, that's that. That's a difficult thing. Uh, so it, so it is a messy story, and uh, it talks about some of the the censorship issues are there. And as you allude to, it also shows that YouTube is in a hard spot. They they constantly are balancing all kinds of concerns. Not, I mean, of course they have legal concerns, and they have every government on planet Earth breathing down their neck. Why aren't you doing more about this, or why are you more doing more about that? They also have to deal with all these users, many of whom want to abuse the system or, or take strange advantage. And it's, you know, difficult to make money. But even with all those concerns, I in this case, they didn't really handle it forthrightly, in my opinion.
3: Yeah. And you also worked in a sort of Damocles uh, reference. Always appreciate a good Greek reference in there. Well done. Talking to Peter Pischke, uh, We're going to continue to talk about this. We're also going to get into Reddit. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. Come back. Her tell Show continues right after this. Welcome back to Hurt Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. That's Peter Piskey, uh, freelance journalist, Young Voices contributor, really good guy. Make sure you're subscribing to his Substack, Happy Warrior. He's got writing all over the place. Just follow him at the social media. You can see it on the screen there if you're on our YouTube. Let, let's wrap up the Ackman thing this way, though, because you just talked about him having seven years of his life into this. He has a lot invested into it. But that's also part of the problem here is that's probably the only reason he survived and came back from this. How many users are just smaller account? Like, you know, when I had my when I got my strike for no good reason, legitimately, like there wasn't anything there. You don't even get that. You just get the automated, you know, you put in a review and it's back in three seconds because it's all automated. It's like, well, no, just live with it. You have no recourse. Mm -hmm. He at least had a little bit of recourse. How many users out there aren't even getting that much? I, I would say it's
6: probably considering how big the platform It's probably millions. Um, It's a little bit like the shadow ban problem on places like Twitter or Facebook is because they hold all the cards and they know the data. It's hard to prove when your traffic goes down for legitimate reasons versus when YouTube's messing with the algorithm. But yeah, political content in particular um, has been under a lot of strikes, but not just health content. um, Sometimes the content really is totally unpolitical in nature is relatively inoffensive, but maybe YouTube feels it's um, too much e-drama. Uh, and sometimes it's just no reason you can figure out whatsoever. You're just like, there's nothing offensive here at all, YouTube. I don't understand. And then they're just like, you know, it's just talking to a wall. Uh, to it's be
3: frustrating. Fair, to it's be fair frustrating. The social media companies, though, how much of this did COVID just really screw it up? Because normally you would, ne- because they build their platforms, probably no engineer in the world ever thought, well, we're going to have to really, really uh, sort through health content. Like they didn't think that was going to be a big cultural thing. That's not something an engineer that's designing the platform probably ever dreamed they would have to do. Just on a practical level, like the coding, the play—that that's a huge curveball for a big platform. Is like all of a sudden, oh, we have to figure out not only what vaccines are, but what our DNA. Like that's that's a big big curveball for these kind of companies, isn't it?
6: Yes, and and being asked to be to be the speech police when that is not what the web as we know was really built upon. That, that takes a whole, that takes a lot of their time. Um, COVID in particular, you mentioned it. What COVID did to places like YouTube, YouTube especially, is that it gave Silicon, you now whether you want to call this an excuse or it was business sense, it gave uh, YouTube the opportunity to downsize the amount of employ- humans it had covering YouTube. And they could just up the amount of bots that were doing that same work, uh, which which, of course, means it takes longer for you to get back from a human and more people are automatically flagged down legitimately and uh, not so much.
3: Yeah. Peter Pitsky joining us. Let's talk Reddit for a minute. Let's start it. Let's start lowest level. I always like to do nomenclature so everybody knows what we're talking about for somebody that has no idea what it is. Just briefly, just disc- what is Reddit? And I know that's a re- that's one of those college questions of like you know explain God and give two examples. But just real quick, what is Reddit <laughs> to the average person? Because it is a message board in that, but it's really culturally ingrained way, way more than just that. Now,
6: Reddit in many ways is is kind of the heart of what the internet what the internet people like to think it is. It, it's it's like kind of like old school message boards, but it covers just about any topic. It's uh, one website. And it's divided into subreddits, and then each subreddit is a is a topic. Sometimes they're funny, sometimes they're serious. Sometimes you know you can find a subreddit topic on just about anything. But what makes Reddit special is it came from that time in the web where the idea was we're going to allow the people, the users, to um, put out the content, to talk about the topics that they care about and want to, and, and there won't be you know uh, top down control for the most part, unless it's like serious illegal. Reddit used to, for the most part, just let it be. Uh, that is not the case anymore, but it is an important website because if you are a normal person and you feel an issue or a topic that you care about is important, anyone can go on Reddit. They go to the, the subreddit, they put, they write a post, and if you do well, you'll get lots of upvotes. It's, it's actually pretty democratic and, and a special site in that way, even with all the issues it still has.
3: Yeah, and as somebody that runs a website, a writing website at ordinary-times.com for the better part of four years now. Uh, people are like, well, what does Reddit matter? I'm telling you, Reddit matters because the right subreddit gets a hold of a piece. It can make a video or a writing piece or even just a picture, whatever. Those Some of those subreddits are so big, they can instantly make something go viral. So yeah, it, it, I look, I'm one of them. I don't fully understand Reddit. I don't use Reddit. There's a lot of ick on Reddit. Let's just be upfront mm-hmm. about that. It's there true. is, because it is, uh, I know some of it they're moderating now, but it's still pretty much the wild west of the internet over there because it's text form and you can text things. It's harder than like a picture. That's how you go viral online is if you get the right Reddit thread going in a big hurry. So yeah, it really does matter. Especially when you're talking about a news item or a breaking news item or an internet rumor or the ever popular on Reddit conspiracy theory, right? <laughs> yes.
6: Oh no. There's, there's lots of serious stuff, but there's also a lot of, there's just a lot of memes and uh crap posting, <laughs> all kinds of fun stuff. I, 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 I'm a a fairly frequent Reddit user, more reader than a poster, but you know, I've found information or found contacts or helped connect facts and stories from help from other Redditors. It's a very useful site. I know a lot of journos, especially who are on like the digital media bait, use Reddit pretty frequently to help put up story ideas. So it's an influential site. It's, uh, It's in North America, it's usually a top 10 site.
3: Yeah. Now compare it. We just talked about YouTube. You also wrote about Reddit. Compare and contrast the two when it comes to banning content, what's the same? Because the, the overall problem is kind of still the same is, okay, when does content rise to the point that the whoever the platform is doesn't want to be responsible for it to the wider world? That's the basic problem. That's a universal problem. What's the same and what's different between what we just talked about with YouTube and other social media and Reddit in particular?
6: The commonality between the two is an ethos that they don't want to get in trouble for anything. And they're not quite sure what that is. Part of them is because Silicon Valley is full of extremely left-wing people who are very uh, vocal and active in their views and how they should be enforced. The other part of it is we live in an era right now where governments, especially the U.S. government, feel that these companies should be doing their bidding. So instead of trying to pass a law or a certain regulation, they're going to put pressure on these tech companies to enforce what they believe are the correct social and political views. It's similar in the sense that Reddit and YouTube vote right now, they're trying to figure out ways where they will have to rely less on users and rely less on messy comments and 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 the drama and all the problems that come with that. Uh, They're different in the way that they're doing it. Uh, Reddit, because it's ruled by moderators, Reddit got really clever where they were going to put pressure on the people who would moderate the subs. Uh, And they would they would put uh, like kind of like YouTube, I said, there's a secret set of rules in one of these articles. That's literally what happened where they this one subreddit um, that didn't start that way, but ended up being basically covering um, trans exclusionary content or or talking about the topic with um, the gender issues people were about today. And they were telling these people behind the scenes, hey, why aren't you censoring that? Why are you blocking that? And they were like, because it's not against the rules. Here are the rules. You gave us. There's nothing on here that says anything about it. we're like, well, no, if you don't if you don't get rid of that, if you don't do something about it, we're going to take you down. And guess what? They took them down. uh It's, it's kind of crazy. I, I I'm not when it comes to the Internet. I'm very libertarian. I'm like, hey, you know, as long as people aren't breaking the law, I don't see the problem too much. Uh, and just you know let things be that's how the internet used to be and that's how both sites basically looked at the internet but these days it's a different world and there is a very strong viewpoint and unfortunately they are the people that are often in charge or working at these companies where they should be proactive people to try to um control or prod a society to go in certain directions and uh, for one i disagree with it because maybe i'm just an old school kind of democrat in those views another i just don't like being broad of it i don't think i don't think many people do
3: yeah fair enough peter Pitsky joining us uh, put your journalist hat on for me for a second real quick um i don't think news media and i'm i'm qualifying that as kind of the traditional news media networks talking heads and their affiliated websites that traditional media big j journalism media I don't think they do a great job of covering the internet and I understand they're on the internet and it's ingrained in what they're doing, but when it comes to things like YouTube and Reddit and now TikTok and kind of the uh, Twitch is a great example of this now where that's the fastest growing political platform in America and almost nobody seems to know it because it's not covered on mainstream. They don't seem to be able to keep up with the bleeding edge of this stuff as well as a journalist. If you could just have, you know, you're having your journalist convention in a spot, you know, unrequited place. What do you tell them? Like, here's something we need to do better at when we're covering things like YouTube, like Reddit, like bands, like content moderation. I would
6: say you need to try to pay attention to where the eyeballs actually are and you probably should try to understand why it's important instead of just being like, you know, um, you know uh, being like the old uh, Sunday school mom, like, ooh, you know, uh, think of the children. Yeah, maybe take a second, take a deep breath, try and understand why this appeals to people. Um, you know, I mentioned Taylor Lorenz earlier in here, she's kind of a Twitter friend, you know, I disagree with her often, but she is one of these people that does understand that where, where people are actually communicating with media and news media can either try to keep appealing to people to a, a, a shrinking audience, even with Fox news, you know, it's the biggest of the news networks, but you know, population wise, it's shrinking. Um, so this is kind of like the new world and news media, you know, if you ignore it, if, if you fail to take advantage of it, well then that affects um, your company and the work you're gonna do at your own peril.
3: Yeah, and Taylor Lorenz for folks that wanna say, oh, well, how does she matter? The last two breaking stories she did, especially this last one that she did, that was the top thing that Washington Post had this entire year. And you think of all the the noise and the news stuff that we've had this year. That was one of the biggest trending things they've had for the entire year for multiple days, which is just gold in journalism.
6: I, I if I can, if I, I cannot tell you how many times uh, in the last two three years where I've tried to cover more tech stories about the internet how many times you approach an editor and, and i love all the people I work with and they're amazing i have no complaints but you know that they often just don't see the people they're like look this is just a story about a beef between two youtubers oh this is just a story about some some small subreddit drama it doesn't really matter and i i understand that point of view and i can say if you're a news outlet if you get, to, you get to pick out a certain amount of stories you can cover you can't cover everything but these things are much more impactful than we think. And it's really where people's hearts are. And whether that's right or not, or whether that's uh, mature or not, or whatever you want to think um, digesting news, consuming news should be, That that is the reality of the situation. And as someone that uh, kind of feels like, um, as a reporter or a journalist, you always want to tell the truth, but you also need to keep an eye on what people are interested in and where the big things are happening in. It, that's that is where it's happening on the internet.
3: Um, yeah, and as a really wise person told me a little while back when I first started doing this, it was like, "Thing to remember about journalists is they don't understand they're the original content creators. They just don't want to think of themselves that way." I was like, "Ah, that's a that's an yep. interesting way to put it." Peter Pitsky, great stuff today. Love having you on. We will be having you back, my friend. But until we get you back Happy on the to. show. Yeah, until we get you back, though, let folks know where they can follow you, what you got going on. We know your Substack; We're going to link to it, but give give us the pitch on that. Let folks know about your social media and how they can keep up with you in the meantime.
6: Yeah, so uh, there's the Happy Warrior Substack. We are working on bringing back the podcast again. Um, you can follow me. I'm often on Twitter at Happy Warrior P. I'm also on Facebook and other places. Uh, I freelance, so you can find my my culture stuff on the Federalist. But I write more newsy stuff like with Newsweek or... Oh, my mind is blanking, Reason Magazine, some others elsewhere. And at the moment, I'm working with uh, your news org uh, on a piece about the Elon Musk situation, which I'm excited to uh, get completed on. And I love doing good journalism. It always makes me happy when people connect and are like, hey, I love this piece, or I have some <laughs> constructive criticism. Okay, not always do I appreciate that, but often I do. Uh, and it's just that's really all I want in, in my life and in the world. I just want to do good journalism that helps people. And that's what makes me happy.
3: Yep. He's a great writer. He's a good journalist. He's one of those good freelance guys you need to support. He's becoming a pretty good friend. We want to make him a regular on our programming and on our platforms. Peter Pitsky, great job, buddy. We'll talk again real soon. Thank you. You too. Thank you, sir. back to her tell okay been a minute since she's been here but she's been here a couple times before thrilled to reconnect she was busy getting yet another advanced degree because she's just that sort of smart good friend of ours young voices contributor uh Cassandra Sean's back on the program welcome back been a while
2: yeah yeah thank you so much I'm uh, happy to be back
3: uh, she just finished up yet another master's degree at the university of Chicago in public policy. She also went to a little school called Cambridge. You might've heard of, I guess, if you have to go to school overseas, that's not too shabby and went to someplace called UCLA, uh, really sharp young lady. We always enjoyed talking to her. Let's talk something kind of semi-domestic because it's only 90 miles off the coast, but it's been a thorn in the side of the U S policy and it's been a rough road for its people for many, many years. Cuba, It hasn't been getting as much press in the U.S. as it normally would. There's been other issues going on, but things are getting kind of ugly down there, aren't they?
2: Yeah, I've heard some people discuss it as kind of like the worst humanitarian crisis Cuba's faced in the past 100 years. So uh, definitely something to be concerned about here in the U.S., I think. um,
3: Now that's saying something, if that is accurate, considering everything that's gone on there over the last 100 years. Mm Mm-hmm. Let's start with this because I want to start big picture. before we get into the econo- the current economic crisis and the healthcare crisis and the fuel crisis, some of that's universal to other parts of the world. Some of it is unique to Cuba because of the situation they're in. I want to start big picture though because our um, socialist democratic friends love to talk about Cuba and they will blow off any problems that Cuba's having is like, well, of course they're having problems, there's an embargo. Now, we know the embargo isn't what it used to be. There's semi-relations. It's formal. It's informal. It changes. In fact, we're going to talk in a minute. Breaking news uh, just a couple days ago, the Cuban government on financial reforms letting U.S. money back into the country. We'll talk about that in a minute. Turn down the noise on that, though, because, of course, the embargo has an economic effect. That's why it's there. What's the status of that? What's noise? What is the embargo? What is the bad policy of the government? Where's the ratio on that so we can kind of get to the truth of what's actually going on there before you get to the specific issues?
2: Yeah, I mean, Cuba has an embargo or we have an embargo currently in place against Cuba. There There definitely is a lot of noise around kind of like, uh how exactly is the US kind of I mean, sticking its thumb on Cuba for no reason um that's the first thing and secondly um what is the US's fault what is Cuba's fault what Cuban government's fault right um i think there's an interesting uh there's an interesting stat i think uh russia has loaned um i think 2 years ago they loaned to cuba over a billion dollars to improve its um infrastructure and cuba the money is gone that's vanished um cuba They are also suffering, I mean, deeply from the diesel and with the fuel price crisis right now. Um, Part of that is Russia, kind of, but they get most of their oil from Venezuela. So not really. Venezuela has their own. um, They're having their their own issues over there. So they're kind of of trickling back to Cuba. But yeah, I think that a lot of the issues we're seeing in Cuba is a kind of symptom of the communist government the Cubans are facing um, and less so much um, the U.S. embargo.
3: One great example that you just mentioned, Russia has been sending an infrastructure investment a total of about 2.3 billion worth since 20, 2006 until 2019 when they stopped doing this. Uh, and back in uh, let's see what's this stated to edit that, but that's okay. Um, back earlier this year in February, Russia actually suspended their debt payments, said, well, we're warming relations. We'll just don't worry about paying us back for this. But that was supposed to go, and I'm quoting Reuters here, that money was supposed to go to, quote, investments in power generation, metals, transportation, infrastructure. Well, one of the major problems right now, and we have all kinds of reporting that started all these protests a few weeks ago, is there is major, major power outages. They can't keep the power on. It's an overly hot summer there. Of course, it's a Caribbean nation. So, you know, the heat, it's hot. So there's power outages and things. So when something like, you know, the Cuban people aren't dumb, they know all this investment money came in, but they can't keep the lights on. There's no wonder there's protests in the country, is there? Oh,
2: no, absolutely not. Also, like it's a dengue is pretty rampant and the the hospital system and like um cuba's kind of like mosquito anti-mosquito measures they've been kind of lax lately so there's like a health crisis like people are suffering and sick at home um they don't have any fuel so people are waiting up two hours and two days in line sorry two weeks in line um for diesel it's like taxi drivers that's their entire income suddenly their entire life is spent sitting in the gas line there's food shortages um uh, the sign the son of the times and pe- the Cuba, Cuban government has to imprison protesters for six to 30 years, um, for taking the streets and banging uh, pots and pans. It's it's very sad.
3: Now, here's what happened with this. They went to the streets and protested a couple of weeks ago, but there was a massive crackdown. And the claims of at least 701 Cubans remain in detention from this crackdown. 622 were sentenced up to 25 years in prison. Draconian doesn't even start to to touch this. The charges they leveled is the usual stuff when you want to round up the usual suspects sedition, sabotage, robbery with force, public disorder. They crack down on it, but are they going to see more and more of this because the fuel crisis isn't lessening? The healthcare crisis, much vaunted. We talked about some of our socialist friends, they talk about free healthcare. Well, the problem is there's nobody to blame, but the government is the healthcare ain't working right. If we see more and more protests in Cuba, is it just going to get more and more draconian? Because I don't think the government's in danger of falling anytime soon. What do we make of the protests?
2: Yeah, I'm I'm inclined to agree with that. I do believe it'll get more draconian. And I think the Cubans kind of had one of two options, protests and risk like massive draconian imprisonment, or they leave Cuba, which is why we've seen a massive influx of migration from Cuba in the past few years. So there's human rights, um, some human rights observers they're noting kind of some of the treatment of the prisoners in the prisons, torture. Um, again, these uh, absurd prison sentences. It's not an easy time for any human um, living under the government oppression.
3: No, it's definitely not. Now, of course, migration from Cuba to the U.S. is not a new thing. Uh, we have a long, long history and varied uh, issues with this. But this new batch seems to be a little bit different. Um, they're leaving in mass again. It's not the usual trigger. trickle that's been going um what do we do because we've already got a huge debate about immigration and migration policy cuban refugees have kind of had a carve out over time uh especially in in florida and we know about the cuban expat community down there is it time to revisit our policy with cuban refugees should we be doing more to encourage or discourage these migrations as they try to flee cuba with all the Dragonian things and all the problems they're having down there
2: just from like a human standpoint, I feel terrible for those living in Cuba and starving, no power, um, lack of medical services. Um, I do think that, I mean, Florida has a very close, obviously a very close tie with Cuba. Um I think that we do need to reform our immigration kind of stance on refugees in general, um, but Cuban in particular. I think there's a very like close cultural tie there. But also, I think there there's something to be said about trying to encourage um, positive growth in Cuba as much as humanly possible. Russia has proven that sending money doesn't necessarily work for improving the situation in Cuba. But um, yeah, I think I am the same as many other or many other political leaders, where it's kind of like well. We have crisis again with Cuba. and
3: It's sad that we have to review it that way of like, well, it's a crisis again, but the, mm-hmm. the government hasn't changed. The reason the protests are so draconian is because the machinery to crack down on that from Castro to Castro's brother to the current leadership, that it's, it's almost ingrained in the society. We, we talked about the political and the economic. What's the human rights part of this when you have a government that oppression is just ingrained into it? it's institutionalized is probably the best way to explain it talk about for a minute because you study other parts of the world especially somewhere like cuba it is an island it is isolated in some respects when you have institutional oppression like this how much that changes the dynamic for things like human rights and civil rights
2: i don't think it necessarily like changes the changes the dynamic i think it just I think we kind of suffer in the West from a lack of kind of like information coming out of Cuba. Like we um, citizens, we we barely hear kind of what's happening over there. I think that's the first thing. And I think that um, once we kind of get more media spotlight around what's happening in Cuba, we'll be able to kind of determine this with much more accuracy. We've seen we've seen um, communist regimes fall before. Um, We've seen them stay in power. Um, I think with Cuba, I think the protests definitely sh- come to show it, that people are aware and sick of their circumstances and they're sick of their government rule, uh, a rule by a government that's not necessarily taking their best interests at heart at all. Um, yeah, you, you see uh, these small infringements on personal liberty in Cuba. I mean, um, what was it? they have now have like a fish, uh, new fishing rules where you can't like there's a big crackdown on commercial fishing. And so fishermen can't sell fish directly to their Directly to the average Cubans, they have to sell it to the state at state or state, state organized prices. Um, very similar things you see in like um production areas and communist governments, but um, yeah, again, I think that I think the protests show they're high, they're highly aware of the circumstance they're in and they want or change.
3: Yeah, there's been a push, um, public relation wise, public relation wise, the last few years. They've allowed more tourism. They've allowed Americans to come in. Of course, internationals have always been allowed to go to Cuba. The accusation is that the Cuban government spent way too much money on the tourism stuff to lure in those outside nationals and not enough on the people in the infrastructure that's the sort of stuff that's kind of the band-aid on the gaping chest wound stuff that really uh, destabilizes a country. So then you start putting power outages and fuel shortages on top of it. Like we said, we don't think the government's going to fall anytime soon. The potential for civil unrest though, is really getting multiplied by the day with all these current problems, isn't it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think back to my, my little fish discussion, um, uh, apparently the average cuban they, they're they they're only allowed freshwater fish um like catfish but they see tourists eating swordfish and all the like the nice fish caught right off the coast of their island country um so i think that kind of stuff like kind of like puts like sand in the moon, so to speak but at the same time i think that uh, the cuban government is seeing tourism as like one of the main ways to increase revenue and pay for these things so it's kind of like I mean, in that regard, like hyper hyper hypering, hyper, uh, ramping up tourism is definitely a way for the Cuban government to kind of like allocate funds where they're lacking. But, but I mean, for the average citizen, it just looks like tourists have more right to live and thrive in Cuba than they do.
3: Sam joining us. Yeah, you've studied other countries and other governments around the world, especially dictatorships and things like this. This is the core problem with something like Cuba is there's really no way for somewhere like America where we want to have, you know, more freedom for the Cuban people. We want to have more economic opportunity for them. But when you're dealing with the dictatorship, there's absolutely no way to get money into that country that it doesn't go into the government's hands and then get misallocated by that government for their own purposes. And it doesn't get to the intended people. How do you set policy for something like this? Because, again, even the Russians who are friendly to that government, they poured money in there. That didn't do any good. Uh, China was going to do a big investment thing. They've pulled back on that with some green energy stuff. Britain has pulled back on some investment. What policy-wise do you do when you have a government that's like, we can't put any money in this country because it's just going to go to corruption right off the bat and it's not going to do any good? Is there even a policy fix for something like that?
2: Um, it, it kind of depends. I think like some of these massive investment projects, um, put encouraging construction and development of these projects and closely monitoring it from a, a foreign government that occasionally works, but not too often. And I think that doesn't, it's, I think China and Britain and Russia are thinking, ah, yeah, this might not work here. Um, there's some like non-policy solutions that some like NGOs have tried. Um, uh, they do like small cash donations to the individual Cuban people, some like us entities have tried that in africa and they've seen that that works but um again i think like the main issue is more like kind of just working with a government that has no interest in helping its people
3: Um, yeah and what the other part of this cassandra sean joining us we're talking a little bit about cuba down today why do we have kind of a cognitive dissidence as america when it comes to cuba This, this is I mean, you're almost swimming distance off the coast. This is only 90 miles off the coast. That's a short plane ride. It's a decently short boat ride. This is a neighbor by any definition of the world on the world stage. And yet we pay very little attention to it. And I know some of that's just stalemate because, you know, the Communist Party and the American government, they haven't gotten along. It's been this way for so long. I think some of it's just probably, you know, apathy and inertia. Why do you think it is, though, that we don't we pay attention to other world events a lot more than we do with something that's this close and this related to our our country, both geographically, but also just geopolitically? This has been a thorn in the side of the American government, multiple administrations, both parties for decades, and we don't seem to really want to do anything about it and just kind of deal with the status quo.
2: I wish I had an answer. (laughs) You're right i think there's like uh there's definitely a lot of pushback right now about like how much attention we give in ukraine and we give other uh other issues abroad um but yeah we do like i mean cuba is so close to us um the cuban diaspora in florida is i mean thriving <laughs> so it's a uh, it's very similar i mean i grew up in san diego we're neighbors to mexico um it's like you hear about issues um, down south you see them occasionally day to day, interacting with people year around but we don't do anything as a country. And I think it's a shame.
3: It's interesting you bring that comparison up, because, you know, I've been to San Diego, you go to Imperial Beach, you just walk down the beach, and then there's a wall. And it's like, yeah, oh, normally a beach doesn't have a wall. <laughs> you know, it's kind of yeah. shocking. If you're not from there, or you go to the I forget the name of the shopping mall, where half the parking lots in Mexico, Los there. America is, there, yeah. there's a freaking wall right there. And you're just not used to seeing walls like that. Is it just out of sight, out of mind where it's just far enough over the horizon? We don't have walls, but then we, we have an immigrant. You know, we talk about the southern border. This is an immigration crisis. It's a migrant crisis. It's a human rights crisis. Is it just that it's just enough out of sight, out of mind that you don't have like we have the images coming across the border and stuff? And it's a smaller amount of people, of course. Is that it? Is it just an optics thing?
2: I think it's, it's two things. I think like Mexico is not a communist government per se um and so like they're okay with reporters. almost
3: showing some tendencies so you might want to hold that thought
2: no yeah the status quo right now has uh, i mean journalists are a lot of travel to mexico you hear stories right across the border from like i mean at those areas in san diego let on the border where you can communicate um with uh, mexican nationals and american nationals but you you don't really see that i think the water is enough of a separation where it really kind of um it does create a massive barrier. And then you have a government that has no interest in necessarily entertaining bad press. Um, so it's it's a combination of it. And then at the same time, you have our media where it's this issue is barely covered in the news. Barely covered. I mean, you barely hear about it.
3: Let's talk globally just one second. Let's zoom back out like we did when we first started to kind of wrap this up, though, is um, everybody's having fuel problems. Everybody's having food problems. There's a global financial crisis going on. Talk about worldwide how it shows up places like Cuba, places like Sri Lanka, we've been covering a lot on this program, the countries that are already under stress when something like fuel shortages, like the Ukraine war, like food shortages from the Ukraine war. Talk about how these countries that are already on the edge, they go from bad to catastrophic very, very quickly when the geopolitic winds shift just a very little bit. Because people talk about globalism and they use the buzzword. It's an interconnected world, and this is the ugly side of that interconnected world, and it shows up in a hurry and in, in diverse places, doesn't it?
2: It definitely does. I mean, you have um, prosperous nations with sufficient reserves. I mean, even the, Europe is freaking out. Um, the UK is concerned about fuel prices, but then you, you look at Cuba, where I mean, yeah, they do some a little bit of their own domestic um, supply of oil. Uh, they rely mostly on Venezuela, but any, I mean, they're reliant completely on their neighbor's conditions. Um, and when those na- neighborly conditions kind of turn sour, um, Venezuela, at least, or um, they have like a less oil coming to the country than, than they're used to and their entire infrastructures rely on diesel. Um, that's that's a recipe for disaster. And I think, yeah, you, you're absolutely right. We are going to be seeing a, a massive increase in protests because at the rate it's going like there's nothing else to do.
3: Yeah, they're out of options infrastructure-wise. Cassandra, one last question on this. Just globally, when it comes to Cuba, when it comes to some of these other issues in the world, when you have a stalemate like Cuba's been, like there's a hard and fast stalemate here as far as American policy towards Cuba and Cuba's policy towards us, frankly. It's a two-way street. What's the better option for us as commentators and just the general public when addressing this? Should we be focusing on the people of Cuba, the human interest stuff, the human rights stuff, Or should we be focusing on the policy stuff, kind of the more geo... Which one of those two do you think is more going to be more effective trying to get it until this stalemate seems to loosen up either by an event or something else happens?
2: Um, As far as, like, injecting into the public consciousness here in the U.S., I think absolutely the humanitarian stuff. I think um, us policy wonks, like, we definitely kind of, like... um, uh, we kind of we appreciate policy analysis but at the end of the day it's affecting the average person um but ideally i'd like to see it like side by side i think like you see a massive reaction people being in prison for 25 years for taking to the streets where that's like something you can do on an average saturday here in the u.s um at the same time you see these insane policy measures put off by a communist government and i think that um yeah, focusing on the human aspects, but sprinklings and policy would be very helpful.
3: Yeah, great stuff, Cassandra Shan. Great to have you back. It won't be so long before we get you back again. But until Thank we you. do, let folks know what you got going on now that you got all this newfound free time on your hands, now that you're not doing school now. Uh, wow. Let them know how to follow <laughs> you on your social media and what you got going on, my friend.
2: Yeah, you can follow me at uh, Cassandra Shan on Twitter. Um, yeah, just politics and startups
3: politics and startups because those two things go together so well now <laughs> uh because always a pleasure to talk to you good to see you again we'll talk again soon thank my you. friend appreciate the time thank you hi uh, welcome back to herd tell okay let's talk a little zoning planning city planning urban planning all kinds of planning or more specifically the lack thereof and then you do some planning to try to make up for the non-planning which makes it even worse this is got to talk about it he's actually got a whole book out about it we'll talk about it in just a minute uh he is a graduate of rutgers he's been doing all kinds of media on this i'm excited to talk about this book because it really is an important topic that actually affects just about everybody one way or the other nolan gray joining us how are you sir thank you so much for the time today well thank you for having me it's a pleasure to be here Fantastic. We usually don't let Rutgers people come on unsupervised, but we'll make an exception for you, my friend. Sorry, I'm, I'm a WVU guy. The old grudges die oh, hard. Oh, well, it's it even worse. I mean,
7: in my heart of hearts, I'm a Kentucky fan, so um, oh. even, even worse <laughs> for you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, Rutgers doesn't give you a lot to inspire loyalty from an athletics perspective. Uh, yeah. I, but uh, I, I do bleed blue.
3: People that don't know, a huge amount of WVU's enrollment actually comes from New Jersey. So that's part of the end joke of that. Uh, Not that anybody cares about it. Yeah. Uh, Let's start with some nomenclature, because here's the problem with things like this is they get buzzwordy online really fast, especially in social media. And people have their little clicks and they'll talk about, you know, affordable housing or they'll talk about zoning. Let's take zoning and break it down because that's going to mean different things to different people. Urban folks they hear zoning they're going to start thinking, oh, uh, development, maybe urban blight, maybe gentrification. Uh, suburban folks they hear uh, zoning they start thinking, oh, they're going to tear down houses and build strip malls. A rural person may never have dealt with zoning and not have any idea what it is, other than that thing people argue about on Facebook. Just deal with the nomenclature, break it down for a little bit. What we're actually dealing with when it comes to zoning,
7: right? So, so zoning is a system of regulation that we have in cities, suburbs, and some rural context, that does two things. Uh, the first is it tells you what uses are allowed on every single parcel in a city. Uh, so broadly speaking, that's you know residential, commercial, industrial, but then within each of those categories, there are subcategories. So in some residential areas, you are not legally allowed to build an apartment. In others, uh, you maybe can legally build townhouses, but not a duplex. Uh, in about 95% of the typical US metropolitan area, it's illegal to build anything other than a single family home, a detached single family home in a residential area. Uh, We'll talk about that, how that ties into housing affordability issues. The second thing that zoning does is it places uh, strict limits on density. So it tells you what you can build and then how much of that you can build, how much floor area you can build. In maybe a commercial development, or how many units you can build in a residential development, and you know, as is probably implied by the by the uh, title of the book, I tend to think a lot of these standards are arbitrary, uh, and they've played a role in in, in making uh, U.S. cities uniquely dysfunctional.
3: Yeah, uh, that's called a segue. We call it "Arbitrary Lines: How Zoning Broke the American City and How to Fix It." That's Nolan Gray's book. We're going to link it in the show notes. Make sure you buy the book and read its entirety. Let's start right there, though. Um, arbitrary line here's here's a problem we have where it's a language problem because we keep talking about government and zoning and regulations as if there's these things that drop out of the either no these are government things but there's people behind there making those decisions which means good bad or indifferent you get the biases of those people you get the experience level of those people and you get the competence level of those people demystified a little bit because i think that's part of the problem when we deal with something like zoning is it's like oh well somebody somewhere is doing that no there's people doing this and to really understand the problem, you got to understand the people that are making that decision, right?
7: No, that's exactly right. I mean, I think the way that zoning traditionally, certainly, was framed was okay. Let's get all the smartest guys in the room and come up with a master plan that's going to control every every little detail for what you can and can't do on every single lot in a metropolitan area over the next um, you know fifty years, right? Uh, so it's, it's very kind of very kind of this mid century modern kind of idea. Of you know we can we can just get the elites all together and solve this problem, um, and deal with problems like incompatible neighbors or deal with problems like coordinating growth with new infrastructure investment. I think exactly. I think you made this point very well. Um, it doesn't end up working out exactly that way. Uh, certain biases come into the picture. Uh, people start using uh, some of these rules. Uh, as a way to maybe uh, suppress new construction. If I'm a, for example, if I'm a, a property owner, right, if I own uh, some office floor area, it's in my interest to prevent other people from building more of it. So the price just keeps going up. Or if I own uh, residential property in a community, right, it's at least partly to my benefit to block new properties from getting built, uh, that increases the value of my asset. Uh, and that's kind of this dysfunctional flow that we've gotten into in many cities and then of course uh it's been used as a tool for segregation uh of course in the US context both on the basis of race but also income if you can say hey um if you want to build a home in this neighborhood you have to have at least 2 acres of land uh even though the market might sustain maybe 5000 square foot lots if you have the power to say you know uh set standards like that you have the power to determine who can and can't live in any given neighborhood and so what you see in many us cities is these rules have been uh used to uh make housing uh much more afford uh much more unaffordable and have also been used to segregate uh cities both on race
3: and class yeah nolan gray joining us here's the thing there's certain things in our parlance when it talks about the other side of the tracks is a good one and people may not realize that comes... That's based in facts, though, because it was like, oh, well, that side of the train tracks isn't desirable property. This side, a lot of this goes back to some basic things like property rights, the tax based thing. That's a huge part of zoning. Talk about that for just a second, because those are some of the elements that go into it that are kind of fundamental. But once we start talking about affordable housing and stuff, we kind of forget about those basic building blocks. So just touch on that real quick.
7: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, so in the book, I sketch out I think one of the four big things that have gone wrong with zoning. Uh, the, the first is the they it's it's made housing much more expensive by making it harder to build and forcing it to be more expensive than it might otherwise have been. It's made it harder for people to move to high opportunity areas, maybe thriving cities that are growing. Uh, it's uh, made it easier for for uh, bad actors to in uh, segregation in U.S. cities. And then it's forced cities to take on maybe a more sprawling form that they might otherwise have. And we can get into all of those. Uh, but I think you're exactly right. I mean, this is an element of the book that I actually don't touch on very directly. Uh, but the property rights issue, right? Is that um, zoning basically puts incredibly strict parameters on what everybody can and can't do with their property. You know, So right now, one of the issues that we're scrambling to deal with, of course, is, well, we need to allow people to actually build maybe something like an accessory dwelling unit or a granny flat in their backyard. That should be legal. In many US contexts, that's illegal. Or uh, you should be allowed to operate a home-based business out of your home, right? Of course, over the last two years, many millions of Americans have started working from home, but in many contexts, zoning actually makes that illegal. Of course, that's a that's a major property rights uh, concern that uh, you know, I think
3: many people rightly have. And before we get into the details of this, since you just mentioned it, I do wanna ask you about it is how much of this, you, you use the term mid-century thinking, you just talked about the COVID pandemic where people really started embracing technology out of necessity. I think it changed a lot of people's views on things. How much of this is not even the math of it or the politics or the policy? How much of it is just changing generational thought on how we address this issue? Because there seems to be, I know post-COVID, everybody's kind of looking at everything all of a sudden. It's because when you're locked in your house, you start thinking about your house. Let's just put it on a basic Mm -hmm. human level. How much of this is just a generational thought change that we're in the middle of? And we maybe don't have the nomenclature and the policy to match it all yet.
7: Uh, that's a really great point. I think there's two elements here. I think this was part of a broader project of making the detached single family home the norm. Uh, and in the context of maybe post World War II, that was fine. We had a lot of land that was very cheap. But now a starter home doesn't look like a detached single family home on a maybe a 5000 square foot lot in many US cities. In many US cities, a starter home might look like a townhouse, or it might look like half of a duplex. Uh, and those are types of houses that we actually make illegal to build today. Land prices have just gone up so much that that, that old uh, Levittown-style 5,000-square-foot lot uh, just is not economical. Um, and two, I think also zoning has entrenched, I think, a cultural norm of this idea of your neighborhood should never change, right? You move into a neighborhood, and when you buy a home in a neighborhood, you're buying uh, some collective right into that neighborhood, never, ever changing. You know, healthy healthy neighborhoods and healthy... Uh, communities are, are are constantly changing, right? And I, the way I frame it to people is like, you can either have all the buildings in your neighborhood remain the same forever, uh, or uh, you can have, uh, you know, the relative demographic composition of your community change, right? So you see so many neighborhoods in a place like California, where I am now, where they haven't built any new housing for the past 50 years. So in one sense, you know, they look the same, but in another sense, no young family can afford to buy a home there. There's no children there. Uh, it's mostly... Folks who are retired, empty nesters, their, their family, their kids can't afford to live in that community. So they move to a place like uh, Nevada or Arizona. Uh, and, the, yeah, the built form of the neighborhoods remains the same, which was the purpose of zoning. But their community, for all intents and purposes, has collapsed. And, and this was, I think, this has been a California problem for a long time. But what we're seeing it now increasingly is spread uh, to places in the Mountain West or places in the South.
3: Yeah all the places those folks are going to get away from the problem to start with, ironically enough. Nolan Gray joining us. You bring up something I want to ask you about because it just kind of triggered a thought in my head, though. This is not going to be a one-size-fits-all problem because what is affordable housing in a city, like you said, maybe multifamily, maybe uh, apartments that are affordable, maybe townhouse-style stuff. You go out more rurally, like where I'm from. Look, I lived in the double-wide until I was 11. That's affordable housing where I come from. You get a trailer, right? this is not going to look the same everywhere. Is this something where we need to have a set of principles in place and then be a little bit flexible in the application thereof?
7: Yeah, you know, I think – one way to approach this issue is to have more state level. So the way we do zoning today is every single municipality gets to write their own zoning code, basically de novo. Uh, so they can come up with their own unique standards. And this makes the whole system very, very complicated. And it also makes it to where maybe a developer in one city can't necessarily build one, the next city over without hiring an attorney and a local planner and all these other things that increase costs. Um, but so one thing you can do is you can set sort of baseline state standards to say, as you know, as a few states have now done to say, okay, look, Statewide, if you're in a residential district, uh, you can build an accessory dwelling unit. Uh, Statewide, uh, you can operate a home-based business. Uh, Statewide, local governments can't force you to build uh, giant parking lots and giant parking garages that don't make any economic sense. Um, And then you say to local governments, hey, within these broad parameters, you can still plan your city, but the most extreme abuses of, of zoning, of course, we're not going to tolerate
3: yeah nolan gray joining us uh we're going to take a quick break we're going to dig into this book he has three cities he uses examples very diverse cities very different cities very different parts of the country why'd he pick those three what does they talk about zoning also going to get into the arbitrary lines this great book from nolan gray he's joining us on hurt tell and we'll continue with him right after this Uh, Welcome back to Herd Tell. We are talking to Nolan Gray. He's got a great book out on zoning and urban planning and city planning, how zoning broke the American city and how to fix it. Arbitrary Lines. Great title, by the way. Love it. Okay, let's dig into this a little bit. You the core of the book, you took three cities as living examples. These are cities most people would know just on name. They're very diverse cities. They're different parts of the country. Why did you pick these three cities as your examples?
7: Yeah, well, I mean, so the main example that I look at in the book is is Houston, right? So, you know, Houston is unique uh, in that it's a uh, it's the it's fourth largest American city, right? And on track to be the third largest American city. Uh, it's incredibly affordable, uh, despite, a, you know, a few decades of just exponential population and income growth. Uh, and it's also unique in that it's the only major American city that does not have zoning. So, what does this mean? This means that Houston doesn't have this system wide the city wide system of regulation uh, that says what uses uh, are allowed on every single property and at what density. Of course, they have a whole bunch of other rules to deal with things like nuisances or uh, preventing development in environmentally sensitive areas. Uh, or they even engage in a whole bunch of stuff that people generally think of as city planning like parks planning or streets planning. But they don't do this sort of weird game that every other city plays where they engage in a system of of, of citywide use regulation. Uh, Through zoning. And so, you know, what gets you is actually a relatively successful city. Uh, They have, as I say, they have other mechanisms for engaging in city planning, uh, but they've been able to remain relatively affordable as, you know, more zoned cities, of course, now struggle with these issues.
3: And this isn't just a social and political and economic issue, though. We saw in Houston, unfortunately, when you have a natural disaster with poor zoning. This stuff can actually be deadly because they went out and, you know, they're building a lot of stuff, maybe on land that wasn't really meant to be built on, that wasn't properly zoned. That actually had a huge effect in the city of Houston also. Well, so
7: it's tough. I mean, a lot of the wetlands development in metropolitan Houston was happening in the suburbs, which in most cases have conventional zoning. Uh, And then there are separate wetlands development is generally dealt with through separate ordinances. Right. So you'll have you'll have rules that say what you can and can't build in wetlands. Uh, and of course, you know, I mean, like, that was separate of zoning. And, and Houston was a little too callous about that going into, for example, a uh, uh, Hurricane Harvey. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean, I, actually not having zoning in Houston is probably a huge asset in the recovery period, right? So, so Houston actually experienced population growth, uh, the year that the hurricane hit. Uh, and it's partly because it's so easy to rebuild in, in Houston, right? It, you know, it, properties that get destroyed, you can very, you can fairly easily rebuild them, uh, and then build them to higher standards than you could Maybe in a place like Los Angeles or San Francisco, where, of course, there would be much stricter regulatory rigmarole. And the actual regulations make a lot of what currently exists illegal. Uh, Houston, of course, doesn't have all those problems. So it's very easy to build and it's very easy for the city to adapt and change over time.
3: You took a couple of cities that um, maybe not as famous as Houston, which I think a lot of people will be shocked at how big Houston is. It's the fourth largest city and growing. Um, you talk about Minneapolis, you talk about Fayetteville, you talk about Hartford. Uh, Minneapolis, is, of course, is a big metro, Fayetteville, Hartford, more kind of maybe mid-level to large cities. Why those cities? What got your attention there?
7: Yeah. So, I mean, all across the country, cities are contending with liberalizing these regulations, right? Because th- there's broad recognition now that these rules are standing in the way of letting cities adapt Uh, And and grow over time. Uh, So Minneapolis, of course, uh, abolished a a policy called single family zoning. This is what I was referencing earlier. Uh, These are rules that basically make it illegal to build townhouses or duplexes or small apartment buildings in the vast majority of most US cities. Minneapolis scrapped those rules. And they're still tinkering with them. Uh, but it's starting to allow for more of this infill housing development. So you can get smaller, more affordable housing typologies in existing neighborhoods, leveraging existing infrastructure. uh, And that helps to keep the city affordable. I like the example of, of, of Fayetteville, Arkansas, uh, because I think a lot of people tend to think like, oh, OK, you know, big cities have these problems. Big cities are going to do zoning reform. But maybe a mid-sized college town like Fayetteville, that's not really relevant to us. I'm from Lexington, Kentucky, which is a very, very similar context to Fayetteville. And you look at Fayetteville and they've said, OK, hey, you know, we're going to get we, we actually want more infill development. We want to legalize those main street uh, developments, those main street storefronts that so often in many small towns just sit empty. Uh, Let's get rid of some of the rules that that block uh, entrepreneurs in our community from leveraging some of those properties and revitalizing some of our streets. And one of the rules that they they zeroed in on were parking mandates, which say, if you want to operate a shop or if you want to build maybe a small apartment building, you have to build a huge parking lot, right? I mean, this is why, you know, you you drive on any major corridor in America and there are these huge empty parking lots, parking lots that are so big, that they don't even fill up on Black Friday. If they don't fill up on Black Friday, uh, they probably don't need to be built that big. Uh, But so Fayetteville said, you know, we're going to scrap some of these rules. Uh, Hartford, of course, in Connecticut, similar story, right? This is much more of a, a Rust Belt dynamic, you know, a city that's experienced population loss. But they're liberalizing a lot of these rules, too, to say, hey, we want people to come back into our community. We want people to invest and build. Let's get rid of some of the regulatory barriers to people doing that.
3: One of the keys to the book that you really wanted to focus on was there's been all these different ideas and thoughts about zoning and urban planning and city planning over the years. You wanted to try to bring them kind of together into a little bit more of one cohesive thing to try to understand the problem. Just for a layperson that doesn't know all the nomenclature, maybe doesn't know a lot about zoning. What's two or three of the things that they should know if they go to, like, discuss this online with their friends or on social media? They, I'm sure they see the trends every now and then, you know, something will pop off on Twitter or Facebook. What's the couple things they should be looking for in those discussions that should really pique their interest and like, okay, this is something I need to pay attention to? That's
7: a really great question. I mean, I would say, I, I, I would say first, a very common misunderstanding. Zoning doesn't get anything built. Uh, zoning only stops things from being built. Right? So for example, when you have a policy like single family zoning and you get rid of it, that doesn't mean that it's no longer legal to build a single family home. That just means that it's now legal to build things other than single family homes, right? Uh, so you, you, you get this confusion quite a lot. Same with parking mandates. People say, well, we can't get rid of parking mandates because we still need parking in our community. Well, the mandate just says, we're not gonna force anyone to build it. Uh, if a developer still wants to build this parking or feels it's necessary to lease out or sell a space, uh, he or she will build that parking. Ah, mandate just says the government's not going to force you to do it anymore. Uh, that's the first. The second, as I would say, you know, c- consider the the downstream cost of a lot of these policies, right? I think a lot of people um, they maybe support some of these policies and uh, you know concerned about things like community character or maybe extremely concerned about how a, a development's going to change their community. Uh, the alternative is never for a neighborhood or a community to stay the same, as I was kind of saying earlier, right? If you don't build those additional housing units, your your city's going to change. It's just going to become much more expensive, and working class families are no longer going to be able to afford a home. They're going to have to leave. They're going to have to move away. Your city's going to become less diverse, less dynamic. Uh, you know, if you make it hard for that new store, that new business to open up in a storefront, uh, the alternative might just be that that storefront sits vacant. As is so often the case in many U.S. cities. Uh, And consider the downstream costs of a lot of these rules. Right. You know, if we if we make it hard, if we add rules and layers and extra onerous processes that make it hard to build over time, that just makes it impossible for these cities to grow and remain dynamic over time.
3: Yeah. Nolan Gray joining us. He's the author of Arbitrary Lines, How Zoning Broke the American City and How to Fix It. Let's talk about that fix it part, because we started this conversation talking about it behind all the zoning and the regular, whether you want to call it, you know, land use regulation, zoning, whatever. There's always going to be people behind these policies. If you go to a post zoning America, what's some of the things you put into place to make sure that the same people problems don't pop up again? Because we know policy is only as good as the people that implement them. What would that look like? What would those steps be to keep some of the human factors from ruining whatever comes after zoning if we did repeal it?
7: Yeah, so I mean, this is a, I I, I critique zoning, but of course I think you still need certain land use regulations, absolutely. The question is like, how should they be structured? So I think a few things. One is regulate the impacts that people actually care about, right? So in the current system, we say, okay, we don't wanna wanna corner grocery coming into this little neighborhood because we're worried that it'll make too much noise and generate too much traffic. So we're just gonna ban the corner grocery. Well, I would say if you're concerned about the noise and you're concerned about the traffic, regulate that or put prices on that, Um, right? So, you know, we can say, hey, yeah, noisy neighbors are a problem. We're gonna have relatively clear rules that are enforced consistently and fairly on noise. Or yeah, traffic is a problem. Uh, If you're gonna put a whole bunch of, a a big giant parking garage on a property, you know, you can pay a fee that covers some of the costs that you're imposing on neighbors. I think that sort of regulation is completely appropriate. And that's really what people want from line use regulation. They want these impacts to be regulated. I would say the second thing is a recognition of the extent to which a lot of these problems solve themselves, right? So if you look at unzoned contexts like Houston, uh, you know, the nightmare scenario of an oil refinery opening up in a suburban cul-de-sac, it just doesn't materialize in practice, right? Uh, these are very different uses that want to be in different places. But then for conflicts that people are concerned about, neighbors are actually very good at coming together and developing emergent solutions to solve these problems, right? So, of course, people form neighborhood associations that voluntarily opt into certain land use rules for maybe a community where it's like, yeah, we want this to be a, a neighborhood of detached single family homes. People can voluntarily opt into those rules, but maybe it's not appropriate for the local government to be adopting and enforcing these rules at, at the public expense. Um, and then the third, I think, big piece of it is you do need uh, planning work. And, and we don't do a very good job of this in the US, but you do need people uh, who are stewarding the public realm. You need civil servants doing this work of planning out streets that make sense, planning out parks at uh, regular intervals, planning out where public facilities are going to be. We actually don't do a lot of this work uh, in the U.S. today, and that's why so many U.S. suburbs kind of look like a, a, a mess of winding streets and aimless cul-de-sacs and, and power centers, and you have to drive everywhere, and you can't walk in any context. Uh, and There's very little mixture of uses. Uh, we can do some of the physical planning work to actually build communities that people like and then say, hey, we're going to plan out the public realm, and then what you do on your private land, uh, we leave up to you.
3: Uh, Nolan Grace joining us. All right, let's do a real world example to kind of put a bow on this. Everything we've just learned from you that you explained so well that even I understood most of it. There's a couple of things I'm gonna have to Google later. Um, let's just take this example because I'm for freedom. I'm generally a free market kind of guy. I want people to expand. I want capitalism to succeed. At the same time, every time I see a strip mall go up, I feel a part of my soul dying because it's just like, look, I'm happy people are working. I'm glad people are getting their businesses in. I hope the rent ain't too high, which is the case in a lot of those. I think a lot of people feel that way, though. It's like, hey, they have their principles on these things. But then in the real world, when you start building a building somewhere where they go every day, maybe it's a school, maybe it's where they shop, more and more of those are usually pretty close together. That's a common feeling with people, though. You see it over and over again. How do they start squaring those two things of like, well, I want affordable housing and I want, you know, good urban planning. But I also want things like I like. How do we square those things out in a pluralistic, diverse society? Because that's just a real question, because people are still going to feel that way, even if they have the principles and belief system. Right. So how do we bridge that?
7: That is a real challenge. I mean, I would say uh, to your specific example, the strip mall, I mean, the strip mall is the ultimate product of zoning, right? I mean, you, you, you basically say, we're not going to allow small commercial that's integrated into neighborhoods. It's going to have to be in one place and it's going to have to have a ton of parking and it's going to have to be set back 50 feet from the street, right? The strip mall is, is a creature of, of zoning. And I would say just to kind of expand that out, I think a lot of the development that people see that they just don't like, that they see maybe as draining, uh, you know, resources from their community or requires a whole bunch of infrastructure that's very expensive on taxpayers. Uh, a lot of that is downstream of these zoning rules uh, that mandate a very kind of sprawling, low slung, auto-oriented form of development and actually actually criminalizes uh, some of the main streets that, that many communities have that they love, uh, right? So that traditional development of, ground floor shops and then apartments over top. Not everybody wants to live like that. And I respect that, but a lot of Americans do. And if you actually look at the numbers, right? Those inner suburban neighborhoods that have a mixture of maybe a duplex next to a single family home, next to some townhouses with a deli on the corner, maybe a barbershop within walking distance, maybe a doctor's office, maybe somebody uh, uh, a lady is offering uh, musical lessons out of her home, right? These are the kind of communities that were, str- that were strong and resilient and that remain extremely desirable. And they're actually completely illegal to build. Uh, in many US cities today. And I think when you, when you sort of make people realize this, it immediately starts to click. The type of neighborhoods that we want uh, so desperately, the, the ones when we have them, we cherish them and we, we actually put historic overlays on them. But then we say you can't build neighborhoods like that anymore. Uh, zoning, of course, is one of the key barriers uh, to building the types of cities that many people uh, so desperately want.
3: Yeah, and not to bash on the strip malls, but there's ways to do that even in suburbia where I know there's a there's a large development. I got to watch it be built cuz it was a field when I first moved down there. And they, you know, they built the shopping area with the movie theater and the restaurants and all the different various you stuff, and they put the mid-level to middle high range homes, single family homes on one side, and then they put the apartment community on the other side, all same developer and both are walkable to the shopping in the middle. There's ways to do this that make not everybody happy, but a lot of people happy and everybody say, so, uh, What's the key here? Is it politically? Is it policy? Is it a ratio between the two for us that want to advocate with our elected officials, which is where this stuff always goes through. And then the money people get involved. So we're real about this. What's the ratio there between policy and politics and just us, you know, frankly giving a damn for lack of a better term, what's the ratio there to make this stuff better?
7: Yeah. I mean, I would say first at the local level, local governments have, huge amount of latitude over a lot of these rules, right? So you, many U.S. cities and suburbs will have a zoning ordinance that was written, you know, 30 to 50 years ago, and will have a whole bunch of rules that make this type of desirable infill uh, development illegal. Local governments can amend those rules today, right? Uh, they have a huge amount of power. At the state level, it's appropriate, I think, for state legislators to say, let's put up some guardrails on this, right? Let's allow those accessory dwelling, units, let's get rid of the parking mandates. Let's Reintroduce some flexibility uh, back into the system, I would say too, in terms of moving away from zoning completely as a concept rather than just amending it. I'd say get some of these other things right, you know, get the nuisance regulation right, Uh, you know, help communities uh, develop their own sets of rules if they want if they want them. Uh, uh, get the physical planning right and then put zoning back to a vote right ask people do you want this institution in some cases people will but I think in many cases people will say yeah actually you know our community is better without these rules that that segregate uses or that just don't allow us to actually build any infill Uh, and you know once you kind of get to that level then I think we'll really be able to move past zoning and and we'll have a much stronger more prosperous more diverse uh, American city on the other side.
3: He's Nolan Gray. The book is Arbitrary Lines, How Zoning Broke the American City and How to Fix It. It's a great book. We've linked to it in the show notes, how you can get it. But let folks know anywhere where you would like them to get it. And until we see you again on Tell, which I hope is soon, where they can follow you with your social media, your writing. You're doing media for the book, obviously. It's going to be a big success. Let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you, my friend.
7: Yeah, well, I'm on Twitter. M Nolan Gray, N-O-L-A-N-G-R-A-Y. Um, you can follow me there. I'm sharing thoughts on zoning. Uh, yeah, the book's available pretty much everywhere. I'm, I always say to people, if you have a local bookstore uh, that you want to support, go go uh, grab a copy there, ask that they stock it. Uh, you can, of course, get it on Amazon or Bookshop. Uh, easiest way is to order directly from the press, Island Press, uh, or just uh, request that your local library stock a copy. Uh, but uh, there's many ways to get it. We got an audio book coming out uh, shortly. Unfortunately, I'm not the one narrating it uh but uh yeah many exciting things i look forward to hearing from people
3: yeah it's an important topic it's one that doesn't get as loud as some other stuff but it probably should because hey we've all got to live here and we got to all live together we should probably do a better job planning that out nolan gray thank you so much we'll definitely have you back to talk more because these issues are never going to go away as long as people are living in america which i hope is for a long long time thank you so much for your time today sir really appreciate it
7: thank you it was a pleasure being here
3: thank you sir Tell. We are back with our boy, Roy. That's not me saying that. That's actually his Twitter handle because he's just funny like that. Roy Matthews is back on the program. Been a minute since we talked to him. Uh, he does public policy for the uh, Alliance for Innovation and Infrastructure, but we're going to talk a little foreign policy today. Roy, how you been, my friend? I've been pretty good. How about yourself? Uh, thrilled to see you again. Uh, okay. I love going, I love foreign policy. We're kind of in an isolationist phase in America. Let's just be honest, America's not really paying attention overseas unless it was Afghanistan. They've kind of paid attention to Ukraine a little better, I think, than some other things, but that's kind of waning. So, why in the world do we need to pay attention to Kazakhstan all of a sudden?
1: Well, most Americans don't know anything about Kazakhstan except for the Sasha Bowen character, and boh- Cohen character, uh, Borat. But Kazakhstan is actually a pretty important country, both geostrategically and for um, energy resources, uh, Kazakhstan uh, exports. I think 80% of their exports are oil and natural gas. Uh, a lot of it used to go through Russia. But in recent time, there has been a lot of instability within the Kazakh regime. And the new president of Kazakhstan, um, Kassym-Jomart Tokayev, has actually um, thumbed his nose publicly at the Russians and in doing so has um, encountered some difficulty with exporting that oil and gas um, to Europe. So there is a good opportunity here for the U.S. or other Western countries to both um, peel away at what has been a very historically Russian ally and also uh, counteract Chinese investment for their Belt and Road initiatives. That, wa- that is a proposal to flood markets with Chinese products and allow the Chinese government to buy up strips of land and portions of uh, geostrategic areas that they feel uh, would benefit their military.
3: Now, so let's back up and make sure, because people probably aren't real familiar with it, so let's just make sure everybody's on the same page. This is, of course, they were dominated by the Soviets like everybody else in that region for many, many decades. Their relationship has been pretty Moscow-centric over the last little bit. But then we had this meeting. Uh, he actually you're not overstating it. He this is in public. This was at a meeting in Europe. And he told him he's like, we're not going to recognize. do ask and lose the breakaway regions in uh, Ukraine that Russia is finagling and flankly lying about to try to make them their own country so they can annex them, take them over, dominate them. This was a really big deal. And it didn't seem to get a lot of press, especially in Western media.
1: That's right. It's a pretty unprecedented for a Kazakh president or Kazakh leader to go on stage with a Russian president and tell him to his face that we are not going to recognize the breakaway so-called republics of Luhansk and Donetsk, and also that they were not going to provide any military aid um, to the Ukraine war. And that has set off a lot of alarm bells within the Russian regime. Russian state media has been going on these tirades and threatening um, Kazakh over their Kazakhstan over their lack of support. And there have been several instances of Russian courts and the Russian government taking uh, retaliatory measures towards the Kazakh government for Tokayev's um, what they call ingratitude.
3: Yeah. So who is? Give us a little background on this guy, because there's some debate even within his own country of his legitimacy. Of course, Russia's all kinds of you. Well, you're not legitimate because now he's not playing ball with them. So take that for what that's worth. But even in his own country, you know, this isn't this isn't a super stable guy. Is this politically calculated that he's going after Putin? Is this a matter of principle for him? Is it somewhere in the middle? Just give us some background on this guy. It's a little bit
1: in the middle. And, you know, I, a big uh, objection to um, the sort of deification of Volodymyr Zelensky is that Ukraine's a very corrupt country and we don't really know sort of what um, his deal is. And it's sort of the same situation for Kazakhstan. Tokayev was the dictator dictator Nazarbayev's longtime deputy. Nazarbayev ruled Kazakhstan from its founding in the 1990s up until just recently in 2020. So he is very, very close to the old dictatorship. Um, But he has recognized that because Russia intervened into Kazakhstan and kept him uh, as president, uh, this was in back into earlier this year, um, there were a couple of anti-government protests over fuel price increases, and that led to rioting and A lot of people were killed and the Russian regime had to send in um, special forces to help quell the rioting. And so a lot of the ordinary Kazakh people see Tokayev as just another Russian puppet who wasn't really elected, even though there was a snap election right after um, all this chaos died down. And so Tokayev, for him, he wants to appear legitimate because he wants to stay in power. And in order to do that, he kind of has to thumb his nose at the, um, well, at his patron, Russia. And in doing so, it's opened up a couple of opportunities for China, which Kazakhstan shares an eastern border with, to sort of fill that investment gap, fulfill, um, fulfill what Russia is not doing, not facilitating Kazakh exports, not investing in infrastructure and other sorts of projects.
3: Now, let's be adults here because we understand this is a different cultural region. Like you said, he has deep ties to the old regime. So he knows, he knows how the sausage is made. He knows the game. So we know uh, Lukashenko, and we know how he is. He's, he's seen as a puppet, but he will also occasionally thumb his nose at Putin for the good. Uh, Erdogan in Turkey, he plays both sides yep. against the middle. He, he just publicly kind of made Putin look bad a couple weeks ago, and then you find out this week he's facilitating the Iran stuff under the table to help Putin out. Yep. Is it what it appears to be? Because in this region with these players, that's a fair question to always ask is, Is what we're seeing, when you see something that public to Vladimir Putin, is that something Putin's maybe playing along with? Because this is somebody he propped up with. Is that a concern?
1: It is a concern. However, the actions taken by the Russian state show that Tokayev really is acting out of his own self-interest here. There is a uh, court order from a Russian federal court that halted um, oil exports through the Caspian Oil Consortium, which is this uh, oil company in Kazakhstan that exports 80% of Kazakh oil, which is a massive amount of resources. And they, they what this court did was um, issued an injunction to halt all exports for 30 days out of some quote unquote corruption allegations. Um, this obviously um, frightened Tokayev because he doesn't want to be known as the guy who, just took that lying down and led to the Kazakh economy shrinking. So he has actually directed the Kazakh state oil company, Kazmonai Gas, to start looking for alternate routes to other markets besides Russia for Kazakh gas. And it's already starting to happen. Um, Tokayev also announced that he is going to prioritize shipping more oil to Europe since Obviously, the Kazakh oil needs a market and Russia is a direct competitor and is also under heavy sanctions that are targeting oil and gas. Um, So Tokayev really is trying to shore up his own legitimacy. And I think the fact that the Russians are directly targeting the Kazakh economy and Tokayev is responding is that this is these actions are
3: um, Tokayev's actions alone. Okay, so China makes this interesting talking to our buddy Roy. Uh, back on her tail again. China makes this interesting for a couple reasons because, yeah, they and you know, Z and Putin are allies right now, but they're not natural allies. They're nat- they're they're going to bump heads again somewhere down the road. China is showing some interest here. This is just another case, along with some others, where I don't think they would mind expanding business in Kazakhstan like they have some other places, even if it needles the Russians a little bit. Because one is this is how they expand their power, they do it financially, and two is you explain for people that don't have a map in front of them, geographically, if you're going to do a Belt and Road Initiative and you're going to link Asia and Europe, this is one of those places you just physically have to go to, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, Kazakhstan sits on the one of the ancient old Silk Road pathways. And in order for Chinese products and Chinese investment to have a, a literal roadway to Europe, you're going to need to develop Kazakh infrastructure and transportation routes. So that's what the Chinese have done is they've sort of looked at Russian meddling in Kazakhstan and said, well, all right, this plays to our advantage because the Kazakhs, the, at least the Kazakh elites are looking for investments, looking for partnerships because everyone likes some Chinese money nowadays. So what, they have, so what the Chinese have done is they have over 700 joint ventures between Kazakh and Chinese companies as of now. And China has become uh, Kazakhstan's largest trading partner and the biggest source of foreign direct investment. But this also doesn't really sit well with the Kazakh people. Um, Because most of Kazakhstan are ethnic Kazakhs, along with some Uyghurs and other sort of Turkic steppe people, um, which are the same people that the Chinese have been imprisoning in the western province of Xinjiang, excuse my pronunciation of that, Um, which does not sit well with the Kazakh people at all.
3: Yeah, we're going to talk about that, the Wagers, how this all goes together. There's some cultural stuff going on underneath this because politics and culture doesn't matter what culture and politics you're talking about. They're going to go together. Talking to our buddy, Roy Matthews, going to take a quick break. We're going to come back more on Kazakhstan. A lot of cross streams here, Russia, China, and you guessed it. There's even American oil companies involved because, of course, there is more of Roy (laughs) Matthews right after this. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Roy Matthews is back with us on the program. Talking a little foreign policy today. Kazakhstan, we love going overseas, getting a broad perspective. Here's another one of those countries. You know, Crossroads is not putting it too fine a point on it, is it, Roy? Because we have China. We have Russia. Obviously, you have the surrounding countries. None of them are particularly stable. And the biggest private exporter of oil is Chevron. That's an American company last time I checked. Uh, what's the stability factor here for this, especially if they start doing things with the gas oil, we know how those things go. Talk about the stability of the country, especially if they start trying to switch from Russia to China and then maybe back again when it's advantageous to the regime.
1: Certainly. So the Kazakh elites are very much, uh, interested in more Chinese investment. Uh, They understand that it's ultimately going to hit their bottom line. If Tokayev decides to anger the Russians and the Russians can shut off, um, pipeline routes through Russia that take their oil to market. Uh, However, the ordinary Kazakhs have demonstrated, protested, and even rioted over um, additional Chinese projects in their country. Um, There were protests obviously over the uh, 2018 whistleblower um, that used to teach in the Uyghur concentration camps in China. Uh, This was a teacher who was an ethnic Kazakh who came to the press and who really sort of exposed um, the sterilization, the torture, uh, and the cultural genocide that's happening in these Chinese concentration camps. Um, and ordinary Kazakhs have um, protested against a scheme by the Kazakh government to allow Chinese investors and sometimes Chinese citizens to buy up large swaths of arable land in Kazakhstan, which is a huge issue because Kazakhstan is sits on a step. It's very dry. It's very arid. Uh, and it has a very cold winter. And so the Kazakh people worry about their own ability to provide food for themselves. Whereas if the Chinese were to buy it, they're scared that the food will just be shipped
2: to China.
3: Yeah. And it's not just they have the largest diaspora of the Uyghurs coming out of China, both refugees and just naturally, because this is a mix of, like you said, Turkish steppe type peoples. There's a lot of different ethnic groups, even inside the ethnic groups here. Um, about a bigger picture a little bit because you have these Look, these folks aren't dumb. They see what's going on in Sri Lanka. They see what's going on in other parts of the world with China. It's not just culturally, is it? They're worried about self-identity and national sovereignty when it comes to taking this Chinese money because everybody got a cell phone, even in Kazakhstan now, and they're seeing like, wait a minute, it comes with stuff on the back ends if we don't make good on our part of it.
1: No, absolutely. You couldn't have said it better. Um, and it's good that you brought up Sri Lanka because that's one of the biggest examples of the Chinese using debt traps to seize control of strategic as well as economically beneficial ports. Um, there is a port in Sri Lanka that was built completely with Chinese money, Chinese construction workers, Chinese materials. Um, and when the Sri Lankans could not pay for it, the Chinese just seized it. And now they have control of both a military base and a port. So the Kazakhs sort of look at uh, another example of um, factory relocations. Uh, The Chinese have attempted to relocate a lot of their heavy manufacturing, agricultural and industrial factories away um, from China and into Kazakhstan. And most of the Kazakhs don't want that because they see um, those bringing in a lot of um, Chinese workers. And what people need to understand is, is when China goes and invests in these places, they're not necessarily hiring the local population. Um, the Kazakhs can sort of make up support industries or have very limited roles in economies surrounding these large complexes. but it's mainly Han Chinese workers and it does and those cultures do clash. There is a lot of historical animosity there. Um, and it makes a lot of the ordinary Kazakhs very, very nervous about um, different Chinese investment schemes in Kazakhstan.
3: Yeah, Roy Matthews joining us. okay. All of that said, all that history, all that culture, all that politics we just went through, you argue in your piece, International Policy nice, yes, that if we had a coherent foreign policy, there would be an opening here for uh, America or maybe the broader West, maybe Europe, to get a foothold of support here. Run us down the list. Pitch it to us like you were selling it to the EU. Why should they, or America, why should they step in here and try to fill the power vacuum away from Putin and make Kazakhstan more of an ally?
1: Well, first off, I'd keep going back to oil and gas. You mentioned Chevron and American oil companies. Chevron and other American oil companies have been involved in Kazakhstan since its independence in the 1990s. They know that there's massive oil and gas deposits in the country, and they've reaped enormous profit from uh, building facilities, building refineries, and facilitating the transport of those resources. The U.S. has an opportunity here to, A, make some money, and promote U.S. and promote U.S. investment instead of the alternative, which is Chinese and Russian investment, and also help supply Europe, which is now being um, subject to Russian geostrategic pressure via their own gas deposits as a way for Europe to get uh, a good source of energy without having to go through Russia.
3: Um,
1: So we already have a good Strategic foothold through Chevron, through all these oil and gas companies. But the Cossack leadership needs to know that there is some other party out there that would be willing to invest and develop this economy. And in terms of Chinese investment, with a lot of strings attached attached and a cultural genocide happening that will not mesh well with the local populace and Russia, which is actively attacking their economy right now, US investment looks very, very appealing um, for the for Kazakhstan, but the biggest uh, barrier to that is I have a good quote from one of the articles I cited is um, we don't really pay attention to Central Asia. Um, one of the one of these um, articles that I cited, uh, this is an entrepreneur in Kazakhstan uh, who was looking for uh, Chinese investment for a wind energy project, and he says, you know, quote. We traveled to the United States a few times when the question, first question was, quote, where is Kazakhstan? You understand they're not going to give you the money, end quote. And that's from a uh, piece that I cited in my essay. So it's very much just a lack of awareness, a lack of what Kazakhstan could do for us. um, That's really holding the U.S. response back.
3: Yeah, I think we get a little obsessed with more of the superpowers dealing with China, dealing with Russia. Not that we shouldn't. There's a lot of other things going on in the world. You can start clobbering three or four or five of those countries together and you start getting kind of close. It's just a we're we're just in that period where our country just isn't paying attention overseas. It's gonna bite us in the butt one of these days, I'm sure. Uh Roy Matthews, this is great stuff. I hope people learned a little bit more about this region. Um, if nothing else, maybe they'll know that they need to pay attention to this going forward. When the headlines pop up, either overseas media, let folks know where they can follow you until we get you back again, my friend, what you normally do. Cause you don't always do foreign policy. You're usually off on other things. Uh, let folks know where they can follow you and what you got going on, my friend. Sure. You could follow me on
1: Twitter at your boy underscore Roy 98. And with a Y in your boy. Uh, and you can also find me on LinkedIn and through the young voices talent page, if you want to see any
0: other articles
1: or media appearances that i've made
3: yeah you do good work my friend it's great talking to you again let's do it again real real soon let us know when you got something coming out and we'll be happy to hash it out here on hurt all
1: right thank you i appreciate it
3: thanks buddy